Sign up for the newsletter so you never miss an update. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. Welcome to the podcast. JustWorks makes it easier for you to start, run, and grow a business. Let me tell you how JustWorks can help your business. It's the ultimate HR platform for small and growing businesses with simple software and expert support for benefits, payroll, HR, and compliance. Across the country, small businesses with big dreams love JustWorks for its simplicity, intuitive platform, and time-saving features. Whether your team is remote or maybe it's in person, you can give them access to national large group health insurance plans and manage onboarding, payroll, part-time off, and compliance all in one place. And sure, you can do it all, but why do it all alone? Learn how JustWorks can help. With JustWorks, you can onboard new employees with ease. You can take guesswork out of employment and tax regulations and requirements. You can access national health insurance plans, get help setting up sick leave policies and all that kind of stuff. Save hours on time tracking that syncs with payroll, plus access 24-7 expert support, as well as certified HR consultants to get answers to your questions whenever you need them, which is awesome. Find out how JustWorks can help your business by going to justworks.com. That's justworks.com for more info. Today's sponsor is Honey. We all shop online pretty much all the time. I know I do. And we've all seen that promo code field taunt us at checkout, right? But thanks to Honey, manually searching for coupon codes is a thing of the past. Honey is a free browser extension that scours the internet for promo cards and applies the best one it finds right into your cart. They support over 30,000 stores online, sites that have tech and gaming products to fashion brands, even food delivery. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites when you go to checkout, the Honey button drops down and all you have to do is click apply coupons. It's so easy, you just wait a few seconds, it applies it and the price drops right before your eyes. I have actually used Honey before and it is amazing. Even my son uses it when he's looking for things and games and all this kind of stuff that he wants to buy. It saves you money immediately. Like it's it's insane. I've seen other people use it. I didn't believe it was this easy until I tried it myself and it's like free to use. It's just ridiculous. I can't recommend it enough. And they have helped 17 million members save over $2 billion. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on these free savings. It's literally free and installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash SPI. That's joinhoney.com slash SPI. You know, things have changed quite a bit since I first started business back in 2008. I started out with a blog and I could just, in a way, hide behind the blog and my keyboard and do well, and I did. And then we started to find that people wanted to learn more about who it is that was creating this content. And that's where I started to show up on YouTube and on podcasts and other forms, live streams and social media. And this is when we start to build trust and authority. And now communities are a big part of how people learn and with each other. Online courses and how people learn has changed quite a bit. For a while, it was all about as much content as possible, right? Like the more content in an online course, the more valuable it should be. But that's actually not true. I once heard recently a case for somebody who was saying, well, the reason why I charge more because I have less stuff in my content or because it only takes me 10 minutes to do something for you versus 100 minutes is I'm charging you for the 10 years. 
it's taken for me to be able to do this well and with quality in just 10 minutes, right? Which is really interesting. But online courses specifically, right? It was always like, okay, well, 60 hours of video and 500 worksheets. And I think we all know now that that's just the wrong way to do it. We want things that are definitely more efficient and more to the point and less work, the better. But even beyond that, Online courses have taken a little bit of a different route now where it's not just about the content, it's about the experience in and around that content. It's not just the setup and then, hey, go and get this content and you know, you're know you on your own now. It can be guided. And there's this thing called cohort-based courses. Cohort meaning a group of people or a group of students. And this was actually something that was, uh, you know, it's been around for a while, obviously. There's always been cohort-based everything. I mean, classrooms and school are cohort-based, right? But when it comes to online, cohort-based course were really made famous by people like Seth Godin. And what a lot of people don't know is Seth Godin and his program, Alt-MBA, which is very famous. A lot of people, a lot of very successful people have, in fact, gone through it. It was actually invented by somebody else. Her name is Wes Cow, and she's our special guest here today. And I and a couple of my teammates on Team SPI had the privilege of working and learning with Wes. In fact, we took a cohort-based course from Wes and her team to learn about how to do cohort-based courses because this is something that we actually do now. We've run several, we call them boot camps, but they're essentially cohort-based courses where we lead a group of people through our courses, but in a more structured format with accountability, with working hours, with group collaboration. And we're gonna talk today with Wes about exactly what this means, how it looks like, how to sell it, how to position it, and how and why you could charge a lot more for it and why you get better results how to structure these lessons and all this stuff. We're gonna unpack it all today from the inventor of the modern cohort-based format, Wes Cow, over at Maven. Maven.com is a place where you can go and set up your cohort-based course that you could sell and then you can house your students in. And we're gonna check that all out today with Wes in just a moment, right after the intro. Here we go. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now, so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And here's your host. He wants to build a secret underground bunker with an arcade below his house, Pat Flynn. What's up, everybody? Pat Flynn here, and welcome to session 513 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. I'm so excited for this episode because we get to chat with a person who we learn from. Wes Cow from maven.com, and she's gonna unpack everything for you about how to create a cohort-based course, how to launch it, how to run it, all that kind of stuff. And we'll talk about the history of them too and just why there's something you should consider when it comes to what you have going on and what you're offering your people online. And especially if you have online courses like we do, just regular, general, self-paced online courses. I mean, this is what has been our business for the past four years. You can add cohort-based courses on top of them. And that's exactly what we've done. We've had Power Up Podcasting for so long. And then we added a boot camp on top of that for in, I think it's a six to eight week program to help people through it. We did the same thing with Email Marketing Magic. And we also ran a cohort-based course for the first time first before creating the digital version of that course. And that's called Heroic Online Courses, in fact, where we teach people how to create a digital online course. And man, the results are unmatched. The relationships that are built are unreal. And those groups are still together today, even though it's been weeks and almost months past some of them. They're still together helping each other out. It's so amazing. 
and you hardly get that with just digital courses. So here she is. This is Wes Cow from maven.com. Let's talk all about it, all about a cohort-based course program. Wes, welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Pat. Really excited to be here. I'm excited to not just dive into your story, but get into cohort-based courses because this is what you teach. You're the co-founder of maven.com. And I got to say, just up front here and publicly, thank you so, so much because what you've given me and my team as far as education for helping people with cohort-based courses has been absolutely amazing and and life-changing. We just wrapped up a big cohort-based course for us. And thanks to you and your help, uh, it's just gotten so much great feedback. So thank you so much for that. Absolutely. It was amazing working with you and your team. You guys were awesome. (laughs) I got to say, though, cohort-based courses and being a student of the one that you put on for us, it's a completely different experience than just taking a DIY online course. I'd love to know a little bit about how you got into where you're at now and, and what drove you into teaching and creating Maven. My journey into online learning started in 2014 when I packed up my bags in San Francisco and moved across the country to New York to work with Seth Godin. Initially, I joined as special projects lead. And one of my first projects was building a Udemy course for Seth. And as I started looking into the world of MOOCs, I realized that completion rates were super low, anywhere between 3 to 7%. So a bunch of people were starting optimistic, excited to take courses, but a tiny percentage of people were actually staying long enough to finish them. Seth and I started batting around some ideas for what are ways that we could potentially flip this on its head? Were MOOCs really the end-all be-all? And we started playing around with a couple different ideas. And we thought, you know, what if we literally did the exact opposite of what MOOCs do as a start? So instead of it being everything being asynchronous, where you are watching videos by yourself, what if we had no pre-recorded content and everything was live and you were doing it with a group of people instead of solo? And what if instead of it being affordable and inexpensive, MOOCs are 10 to $50 a course, what if the course were expensive enough that students felt like they had skin in the game and it would help keep them accountable? What if instead of passive content consumption, it was all about active hands-on learning? So instead of watching an expert tell you what to do, you actually put those lessons into practice yourself with feedback, with time for iteration, with time for practice. So you were discussing, debating, role-playing with students around you who were equally excited about the topic. And putting this all together led to the Alt-MBA. It initially started as a project that we were going to do once and see how it would go. And I was personally skeptical in the beginning. I knew that when you brought people together in a room that, you know, when you're breathing the same air, you feel transformed learning together. But I wasn't sure if we could replicate this online. And at the time, Slack and Zoom were still fairly new in the mainstream. And people, you know, weren't really sure, you know, can I meet strangers on the internet with video? Can I really learn deeply with a group of people who I've never met? And from day one of the Alt MBA, when we got everyone together, in Slack, everyone together in Zoom, in their learning groups. It was just pure magic. People were driving, they were connecting, they were talking with each other, they were DMing each other, and it just took off. And so for me, that was a really exciting turning point where I realized there was something about this format that was really, really special. For the next three years, Seth and I built the Alt-MBA 
from the ground up. I hired out a team, grew the alumni community to 500 cities in 45 countries. And after those three years, you know, there was another question which popped up, which was, was the Alt-MBA an anomaly in some way? Was it something about Seth's content, about the audience we were working with that made this all work? Or was this a format that could be replicated with other creators, other experts, other functions, verticals, and topics? So that's when I left the Alt-MBA to do consulting directly with creators and helped Professor Galloway from NYU CERN build up Section 4 and his proprietary sprint. I worked with the co-founders of Morning Brew, Alex and Austin, to build their Morning Brew Accelerator course. Worked with William Urey, the negotiations expert from Harvard who worked with President Carter to turn his material into a core-based course. Worked with David Prell, Tiago Forte, worked with a bunch of creators on you know a bunch of different verticals and proved out the concept that, yes, this actually does work with different verticals. Which brings us here to Maven, starting Maven last fall and now working with amazing creators like yourself and your team, 80 some creators now in our current cohort who are teaching to build core-based courses and just seeing the field expand and seeing creators realize that, hey, this is an amazing way for me to share my knowledge and monetize my expertise while building my community has been really, really exciting. That is incredible. I mean, what a resume. And for those of you who are listening, you're like, okay, you keep hearing this term MOOC. What is that? That is short for Massive Open Online Course, right? And a cohort-based course is essentially the opposite. It's not massive and it's not open. It feels more closed. And as a result, the members who are in there can feel closer together and work closely together. And I know this having just gone through your cohort-based course through Maven. Can you describe for us what are the specific things about the cohort-based course that are different from the MOOCs that really allow these students to succeed and excel within it? What are the big differences that you just can't get in a DIY kind of situation? With MOOCs, there's almost too much freedom. So I think all of us have experienced procrastinating, have experienced saying we want to do something and then acting against our own best interests. So I personally have signed up for a bunch of different MOOCs over the years. I think I have a hand lettering calligraphy course in Skillshare somewhere and a classical music course in Udemy. And I've taken maybe a lecture or watched half a video before saying, oh, you know, there's something else I got to do. I'm going to come back to this. And because I can go back to it at any time because it's evergreen and, and it's on demand, all these other things that pop up that are distracting, that feel more urgent, take me away from going back to completing that course. So the thing about core-based courses, because they have a, a set start and end date and you're doing it with a group of people, there's way more of a sense of urgency that compels you to focus while the course is in session. So if the course is two weeks or four weeks or three days, during that period of time, you feel much more focused on the course than if you know it lasted forever and you could really go back to it forever. So that's one piece. I think the other piece is the community element. I think that people were never meant to learn alone, solo, processing ideas themselves. We learn so much better when we are surrounded by people who are excited about learning the same thing as we are. There's definitely an emotional and social element to learning that isn't just about knowledge transfer and facts. If it were just about that, then we could all get textbooks on any topic, read through them without ever feeling burnt out and, and just learn anything we want to. But that's really not the way that we learn. And I think with cohort-based courses, 
the community aspect, the peers, the feedback, coaches, if the course has coaches, all of these elements serve as hooks to keep students coming back, to keep students accountable. And it really holds the instructor and the course grader to a higher standard too. I talk about the content hierarchy of BS, where the base of the triangle is tweets, and then above it's blog posts, podcasts, or clubhouse. And then at the tip of the triangle, the very top, it's core-based courses, because there's less room to hide. With a course, your students might ask you questions in front of a hundred other students, and they might question your material, or they might go down a rabbit hole. So that live element adds a lot more of a, a temporal urgency to the learning, and it also increases the stakes to make sure that the creator themselves has their act together, that their material is defensible, that they have expertise to back up what they're teaching because students could potentially challenge them you know, when they're live. And, and that opens up a lot of great discussion where both the creator learns something new and then students are also teaching back and teaching each other. So it's bi-directional as opposed to one-directional. And that all adds that urgency and community feel that gets students much more excited about the material. That's so great. And I know that when you're in a cohort-based course, you can feel that excitement. But I'd love to talk before we get into the nuances of perhaps how to structure a CBC. How does one sell a cohort-based course to an audience when it is like, okay, this happens at this time on this date. It's very specific. And I know that one of the benefits of selling a DIY or a MOOC is, like you said, you could take it at any time. And that is of benefit to, for example, a potential student because they can fit it in when they can fit it in. How do you sell the idea of, hey, this is when classes happen. This is time that you'll have to allocate, it feels on the front end like it's going to be a lot more than what you might have to expect out of a DIY. How do you sell that? How do you position it? If you think about traditional learning, almost all of it is cohort-based. So K through 12, higher education, going to college, college started in the fall, you graduated in the spring, it was four years, there were times when you had to be in class. So this idea of learning in a cohort-based way is, is not new per se. It's more new to um, online learning because MOOCs and DIY on-demand courses were kind of the only option for a while. With cohort-based courses, the live component definitely is an important piece. There are certain courses that run twice a year. So David Perel's Rite of Passage, for example, Tiago Forte's Build a Second Brain, these all run twice a year. The Alt-MBA runs four times a year. Anthony Pompliano, Pomp's crypto course on Maven, has been running every month and a half or so. It's only been five months since he's launched his, his first cohort, and he's already run four cohorts. So it really depends on the creator and how often you want to run your course. The live piece is definitely a feature and not a bug for the right type of student. So I think that, that on-demand DIY courses are amazing for a certain use case. If someone wants to learn on their own, they want that flexibility, they want to be able to take the course whenever they want to and you know mold it around their schedule, the DIY format is great. And even in our own course, the one that, that you and your team took, Pat, we're moving some of our material into pre-recorded videos. That opens up time during the live sessions that we do to spend time doing things that you can only do live. 
group discussions, breakouts, guided exercises, giving feedback, doing live critiques so everyone can learn from us critiquing an instructor's project. So there are definitely use cases for doing for doing pre-recorded. With the right type of student, a certain type of student, on the other hand, the live aspect that there are set start and end dates, that there is less flexibility, that's what helps that kind of student show up and actually do the work. Tiago, for example, I saw a tweet that he wrote, I think like last week, where he said that the only way that he can learn nowadays is cohort-based, that he just can't compel himself to learn, read, you know, watch videos, et cetera, without accountability in place somehow. I feel the same way. After experiencing and, and helping to build so many cohort-based courses, it's really hard for me to kind of go back to learning with purely DIY because I have a pretty short attention span. I get distracted easily. So those certain end dates, that's really part of what I'm paying for is getting myself to show up, putting skin in the game. I think of it as um, a creator having a portfolio of different products, different digital offerings. And you might be selling you know, eBooks on Gumroad. You might do, uh, you might be tweeting or writing a, a free newsletter. You might have your DIY course, and then you you, you know, might do coaching, and you might have a core-based course. So all of these offer something different to different segments of your target audience. And that's exactly how we're positioning it as well. We have the cohort-based courses, in fact, on top of, and in addition to the DIY versions of that already. We did a podcasting bootcamp, for example, which was a cohort-based situation on top of our pre-existing course. And in fact, the interesting thing about that was 100% of the students who took that cohort-based course were people who had already purchased the digital course and had yet to get started, which was just, again, a you know, they were just like, well, I bought it because it was something I needed, but I just didn't have the time or I needed more structure and accountability. And here we go. Here's a CBC. And now they have a podcast. So even though it is a higher price, you're right. The live component is, in fact, a feature, not a bug. And I love how you frame that. Let's talk a little bit about the actual cohort-based lessons and modules. Like, how is this going to be structured? How is it typically run? And, you know, DIY, it's kind of simple, right? Modules and lessons, you watch them, you move on to the next one. But how is a cohort-based course structured for those of us who don't necessarily know even what that exactly looks like yet? Cohort-based courses have a couple key components, and you can mix and match them in different ways based on what's the best way for your target student to learn this topic and based on your own preferences as a creator. I always like telling first-time course creators to start from those two places because if you don't, there are so many variables and it's very easy to get overwhelmed. So with DIY courses, for example, it's mainly pre-recorded videos. You have unlimited time to get it right and then you hit publish and then it's set it and forget it. Whereas with a cohort-based course, the live component and the more premium price point add additional variables. And mainly it increases expectations on the student side. If students, let's say, paid $20 for a course and it wasn't great, oh well, not too big of a deal. But let's say they paid $1,000 or $1,500 or you know $700 for a course, they automatically will have higher expectations for you know what is that experience? How much am I getting from that? In terms of all the different questions that a creator has to answer, some of the common ones are, how much should I charge for my course? How long should my course be? 
how narrow versus broad should the scope of my topic be? How many students should I aim for? What should the course's weekly schedule look like? So those are all a lot of questions that can be overwhelming. And the way that I usually recommend first-time course creators to start is, one, to think about your student transformation. What does your target student want to learn that is juicy, that they're willing to pay for, that they're really eager to learn from you specifically? So that's one. Second is, what are your own assets and constraints as a creator? Let's say you don't like messing with technology. You don't have a good design instinct, let's say, uh, don't like messing with camera equipment, et cetera. Then don't make production value a key selling point in your core-based course. There are plenty of courses that have great production value and plenty that have very poor production value and still are awesome and have a lot of students. If, on the other hand, you like tinkering with Photoshop, you like making slides, you you know nerd out about audiovisual equipment, then maybe production value is your selling point. So it really depends on your own areas of confidence and your own assets and levers. There are some creators who start off who already have an audience. That's great. That's an audience that you can market to. And you might set a higher student count initially. Let's say I want to have 100 or 150 students. Awesome. If you have an audience, then that that's very doable. On the other hand, if you don't have much of an online presence yet, you're still building up your newsletter, you're still building up your online presence, then you might start with a slightly smaller student count. You might say, hey, I'm going to do 30 students for my first cohort, 20 or 30 students, see how it goes. And you know, instead of trying to get all your students via Twitter and social media, you might say, you know, who in my network do I know that I can cross-promote with? Can I do webinars and fireside chats to interview certain people who have audience bases in groups that I'm trying to tap into and get your initial students that way. So it really depends on what your initial assets are and, and what your constraints are and what your students are looking for from you. And from there, then you can say, all right, based on what my students are looking for, based on my own schedule, my strengths, my weaknesses, I think my course should be, my initial cohort should be a three-day course because I want to get one cycle of course building under my belt. I'm going to start small with 20 to 30 students. I'm going to price it at something that I feel like will be really juicy for them, maybe $500 to $700, see how it goes. And then someone else might do that same exercise and say, all right, I'm going to aim for 100 people in my initial cohort. I'm going to price it at $2,000. And this course is going to be three or four weeks. And it's going to be doable for working professionals. So the hours are going to be set in a way that makes sense for my target students to be able to attend. It depends on your situation and your student situation. And then you use those as guardrails to decide the mechanics of price, length, intensity, how project-driven it is, whether you want coaches or not. All of those are actually quite flexible as long as you keep your end goal in mind, which is I need to offer something that feels very valuable for a target student who's about to pay me their hard-earned cash money to take my course. I'm remembering some lessons specifically that you had given us where we were actually meant to move a couple levers and sort of scales up and down to determine what our perfect price point would be, the size of the cohort, all that kind of stuff. And it's interesting because those specific exercises where we had to actually 
in real time make decisions and also in real time share those decisions and get real feedback. I mean, that's really what the power of the cohort based model is. And I'm still sticking with that. Even today, I can, I mean, I've taken dozens of online courses and I wouldn't even begin to tell you certain components of those because I was just watching, moving on to the next lesson. Here I am actually doing the work, which is the real benefit here. Let's go over like what a typical week might look like for a person teaching a multi-week cohort-based course. You had done when you were teaching us, and this is how we structured it as well for our first group, which was meeting twice a week. The first part of the week was gonna be more lessons, but it wasn't just like watch a lecture. Let's go over that first component and that first part of the week where you are teaching something, but because it's cohort-based, can you go over how we can uniquely teach something and the breakouts and some of the other interactive components that we can include in the lessons? I have a method of lecturing online that I call the state change method. So if you think about Zoom calls that you're usually on, whether they're webinars or you know Zoom lectures, it's usually one person talking the entire time. And it's really hard to sit still staring at your screen for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. Your mind just wanders. So the state change method was a reaction to that. And with the state change method, if you imagine, let's say, a line of lecturing, there's state changes that punctuate that line. There's never more than three to five minutes that go by of lecturing without some kind of state change. So a state change is anything that interrupts that monologue. It could be, hey, everyone, here's a question. Put your answer in the Zoom chat box or unmute yourself and share your answer to something. Or it's switching speakers. So instead of just one speaker, it's having the moderator chime in. Or it's a breakout where you put everyone into a room for five minutes to answer a question and then come back and share out. Or it's a guided exercise where everyone stays in Zoom gallery view, we all silently work together and I'm timing, you know, one minute to do this exercise. The minute is up. All right, next, we're going to do this thing. And we all silently work together. So those are all, all examples of state changes that help to create a lively, fast paced rhythm during a live workshop for a cohort based course. That sense of rhythm is really important. It's, it's, pacing that helps your students feel like you're keeping them on their toes. And this helps them stay mentally engaged and it helps them stay present. And it really combats the lethargy that can kind of sink in if you're just sitting at your computer, you know, staring straight ahead at a screen. Yeah, I mean, we implemented state changes every couple of minutes, if possible, within some of our lessons. And the cool thing is, if you do this right, you hear from the students at the end saying things like, oh, wow, are we already done? Like, oh, I had no, like this went by so quickly. And that's kind of what you want to feel because then it doesn't ever feel like a bore or like a just a lecture at a university anymore. It's actually interactive. And so you had mentioned breakout sessions that we found to be very, very powerful. Can you talk a little bit more deeply about how breakout sessions are run and how to come back into the room together and then continue on with your lessons from there? Breakout sessions are a great way for students to practice the lesson that you just taught them. Let's say that you're teaching a course on sales and pitching, and you just went over doing a teardown of what a great pitch looks like and some of the key elements. Instead of just moving on to the next thing, what you could do is do a breakout where for, let's say, seven minutes, you put students into groups of three to five, and everyone 
works on sharing their pitch with each other and giving each other feedback, pointing out, here's the parts that made my eyes light up. Here are the parts that were confusing or kind of made my eyes glaze over. This idea of working and practicing and and putting these lessons into practice is a really powerful way for students to apply those lessons to themselves and to their own situation and therefore really internalize that material. Once the breakout is over, let's say the seven minutes have passed, everyone comes back into the main room. And that's another opportunity for really rich learnings. Because when you invite students to share out, hey, what did you talk about in your breakout? What were some key takeaways? Or what was a great piece of feedback that someone gave you? Or what was something that you changed your mind about? These are all chances for the broader group to hear from everyone else, to hear from all the other students and see how other students interpreted the prompt. See what other students thought of that you might have never thought of. I think that that the share outs after a breakout are some of the most interesting parts of running a course on the creator side, because inevitably your students think of things that that you didn't even think of. And I hear this from instructors all the time. Lee Jin was saying the other day, so so Lee's a a venture capitalist. She used to be at Andreessen Horowitz. Now she runs her own VC firm. She coined the term passion economy, and she has a, a course on the creator economy on Maven. And she was saying that she learned more and, and just as much from her students as they did from her. Because all of her students thought of unique use cases for what she was talking about. They thought of edge cases. They thought of examples and industries that she didn't think of. And she said it sparked so many ideas for her that she ended up writing other great essays because of what she was seeing from her own students. So if you can imagine that being that the share outs after a breakout being that impactful for an instructor, it's incredible for a student where usually if you're learning something by yourself, you're not seeing what other people are doing with with that topic or that prompt or you know how they're thinking about things. That's so true. I mean, th- th- those were some of the f- my most favorite parts from the last cohort that we ran was uh, during the share outs. And in addition to the learnings that are happening from the team and from the other students with amongst each other, just the comments from people supporting those who are also in the course, you know, the group support from each other was very apparent during those share outs. Congratulations. And wow, that's excellent. Or even additional feedback coming from those who were sort of sitting there and and listening to the to those who were presenting. So, so fun. And those breakouts were definitely key. And I know it can feel a little weird, like forcing people to talk to each other. I think that was the thing that I had to get over because being an introvert myself, I almost am deathly afraid of that. And I remember sitting in class as a kid, never raising my hand because I didn't want to be put on the spot. But part of your role as the course creator is almost to put people on the spot, to force them in a safe space to be able to uh, learn and present and and learn from each other and and connect. Do you have any thoughts on, on that idea of, you know, the interactivity with those who may be a little bit scared to do so within a student base? I, I love that you shared that you are an introvert and, and never raise your hand. I am also that person. So even now, you know, I last summer took a core-based course from one of my former clients, Susie Patiz, who is the founder and CEO of Poopery. And she she has a course called Alive OS, eight weeks. And I went into course thinking, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn what I can, but I don't really want to participate. I went in kind of already hesitating on that, on that front. And I remember the first group meeting that we had, it was, I think it was eight or nine people in my pod. Everyone else had shared. It was, I think it was one hour. Everyone else had shared. I thought I had gotten away. 
with with not having to share. And right at the end, I think there was three minutes left or something that the coach said, hey, Wes, you know, you haven't shared yet. Um, would you like to share? It was like this fork in the road where part of me was like, no, I'm just going to not share. And the other part of me was like, well, Wes, you are here to learn. Why don't you give it a try? Just share something and have the full course experience. So I decided to share. And once I started sharing, it was like everything just came pouring out. And the group was so supportive as I was talking that it encouraged me to, to, to keep going and to share more and to, to dive deeper. And I'm so glad that I shared in that first week, in that first group meeting, because for the rest of the seven weeks, the weekly group meeting was the highlight of those months and the highlight of the course. There were actually times when I missed lecture, me being a bad student, I, I actually missed some weeks of lecture, but I never missed the group meeting of the week because it was so transformative for me and so special to have a space where I could talk openly with other people who were thinking about the same thing, learning about the same thing, that shared context, um, we had, you know, a shared, shared language from the course that I moved stuff in my schedule. I scheduled around that group meeting to never miss it. I think that that experience of going forward and, and leaning in as opposed to leaning back when you have an opportunity to participate, that's really what you want to do as a student if you're in a core-based course. And I think on the facilitator side, the creator side, the moderator side, our job as instructors is to create that space where your students do feel that excitement that I, you know, I think came across my voice because I'm thinking about it now and, and you know, talked with my hands, can't see me because I'm, you know, audio, but pretty excited. And, and um, you know, our job as, as instructors is to create that environment where your students feel like they want to show up, they want to share, they, they want to open up and to gently encourage that. And different students, you might have to, to encourage it in different ways, but giving a, a gentle nudge, a gentle prodding is, is usually good for both the student and, and all the other students who are going to get to benefit from that student really leaning in and participating. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I, I experienced the same thing. And it's interesting because in a couple of our boot camps, when we were collecting feedback at the end, people had said exactly that. Oh, I was kind of reluctant. I didn't really want to share. I just kind of wanted to coast and listen and watch everybody else. But then once they almost were put in a position to share out, they felt that it was just some of the best of the stuff. And in fact, we got a lot of feedback that was like, we want more interactive moments. Like we, we need more of it. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so special when it happens. Let's continue talking about, so let's say first part of the week is lessons with a lot of these state changes and purposeful interruptions to get people to interact with each other and whatnot, to learn, to make progress. Second part of the week, which was interesting and we've also implemented, was more of a, a co-working situation where people could come together and, and actually find the time to work. And then on top of that, the homework. And, and homework is another one of those words that can often scare some people, but it was absolutely valuable to have space to actually turn in. And also, I think the deadline was, what, 3.30 p.m. on Sunday every week with you guys. And we scrambled to get those things turned in, but it was so helpful. Can you talk more about the idea of having these other components to help students beyond just like lessons and breakouts, but you have co-working, you have homework? How are they structured? How and why do they exist? Having asynchronous work, whether it's readings that you're doing on your own, videos that you're watching on your own, homework that you're doing on your own, those are all important ways for your student to percolate the material that, that you might have gone over in a live setting. 
So there's a great stat somewhere about how people need to hear information a dozen or so times before they really internalize it. So if your students are hearing something for the first time in a live workshop, let's say the workshop's an hour and a half, that's not enough time for them to experience true behavior change that is actually going to last. They need to percolate with that idea. They need to incorporate into their lives. They need to think about it and and really get used to that idea. Homework, projects, having milestones for, you know, and 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 different deadlines that that get students to do the work. The more that students think about a new idea, incorporate it into their lives, the more likely that they're going to remember it and be able to add it permanently to their toolbox. The idea of deadlines and and due dates within a course too really help to spur this because we've all procrastinated to do something until the last minute. With a core-based course and adult learning, continuing education in general, you can't really force people to do anything. I mean, we you can say this is a deadline. There's no punishment per se. Whereas I think in, in K-12 higher education, it's much more stick-driven. If we think about carrots versus sticks, it's much more stick-driven because if you don't do this thing, well, you know, I'm going to fail you or you're going to get a C or I's in the professor or, you know, you're not going to be able to graduate on time. So those are all fear-driven motivators that are sticks. Whereas when your students are working professionals who are doing your course basically for fun, you know, for for professional development to improve themselves, they're here because they want to be here. You need to use carrots, not sticks, to, to motivate them. And creating different media for your students to interact with the material, different ways to create a sense of urgency, whether it's, hey, you know, we have live workshops. If you want to participate live, you have to show up at this time, you know, on this day, or, hey, your projects are due on this date. If you want feedback on your projects, be sure to submit by then. These are all more positive ways to to motivate your students and to make sure that you're giving them a range of different media to learn from, because not everyone learns best in live situations or when they're put on the spot or or purely in group work. It's usually a combination of doing those things, the group work, the live pieces, et cetera, plus also reading on your own and thinking on your own and practicing on your own. And there, there are situations where you working on something uninterrupted for an hour or two by yourself, let's say you're, you're, you're drafting uh, an about page. That's, that's one of David Prell and Rite of Passage, one of his projects is to redo your own about page on your website, right? He talks about personal credibility, personal branding, and then students do this project. You could say, hey, you know, we're only going to do stuff live and you have 10 minutes to redo your about page. But is that really the best way for your students to learn this particular concept? Probably not. So a student giving them a chance to work on their own solo a couple hours to, to really dig into rewriting that copy, rethinking about their positioning, thinking about credibility signals, et cetera, and then turning that in. That's probably a better way to, to learn that topic. So as a creator, you want to, you want to offer these different ways. Super helpful, Wes. Th- thank you so much. And there's obviously so much more we could cover. Um, I do have one final thing I want to ask you. But before that, can you talk about Maven real quick? I want people to go to maven.com to learn more. But what can they get when they go there? What should they look out for? How can they work with you? Maven is a platform that makes it really easy for creators to build, launch, and host their core base courses. 
So we offer software and tooling that brings all the different complex pieces into one place. So it's really easy for you to manage. We will eventually be a marketplace that will help connect students with instructors. And we also offer know-how and content and resources on how to build a great core-based course. So the the course that Pat and the SBI team participated in was part of a multi-week free course that we offer to creators who are interested in building a core-based course. So if you're if you're excited about that, you can check out our website where we're accepting applications for our upcoming September cohort. Thank you, Wes. I appreciate that. And the final question I want to ask you was with with relation to how do you close the cohort-based course with your group of students? Because with the DIY, you know, there's usually a final lesson. uh, Here are your next steps. But I imagine that there's a lot more opportunity to do something even bigger, even more special for those who have just participated in a multi-day, multi-week situation with you. How do you end or how do you celebrate that with your students? For our own course, which is six weeks. In the future, we'll probably trim it to three weeks. Going back full circle to how the different mechanics are all flexible as long as your your end goal is kept in mind. So we're changing the number of weeks here. But at the end of our course, we do a graduation. So our graduation is coming up in two weeks. And the graduation is a chance for all the students to come together and reflect on how far you've come in this course and reflect on the key takeaways that you want to remind your future self. So future Wes, I want you to remember this, because this was a really important thing that I learned. And it's a chance to celebrate that, for us at least, this is just the beginning. The students that we work with, who are are actually creators, are going to go off and build amazing things. And so for other instructors and creators, your own students, this is just one step in their, you know, in a much longer journey, maybe one course that they're taking from you that that is in their journey. And and you might have other courses and other offerings to help serve them. We like celebrating at the end and ending on a high note. One of my philosophies is always end on a high note where you're throwing confetti in the air and then you wrap up. A lot of times, course creators want to continue the momentum. But if you don't have the right levers in place with the timing, um, everyone getting together, it can kind of be a deflated, deflating balloon where it's like, oh, well, let's just keep Slack open. And it and you keep it open, but but it just slowly dies down or very quickly dies down rather because there's nothing that's really bringing everyone back in the same way that in, in the way that during the course there were levers bringing people back. In terms of how to end, one is end on a high note. Two is if you do want to keep a community going, that's great. But you want to think about what is the right way to keep the, the community going and how do you set expectations? With the Alton Bay, for example, always, you know, on, on the last day of the course, we had so many students, you know, i.e. recent alumni who just graduated say, please, can we continue this? Can we just leave everything open? And we found from running many, many sessions that once the course ends, students need something different. It's no longer that four weeks where they're they're committed to the course. It's, it's now, you know, back to regular daily life where you have other responsibilities, other obligations, etc., so we move students into an alumni community that has its own separate offering. So instead of trying to continue the course and make it you know, a bad version of that, we give them a new offering, which is entirely designed for alumni with diff- a different set of expectations and different ways to keep alumni engaged. We have an alumni newsletter, at least when I was there, that went out monthly. There's different alumni-only events ways to meet people who've taken other 
courses within the Akimbo ecosystem, besides Alt-MBA, offering something that is appropriately designed for your community is really good because you, you want to create something that is actually sustainable for you. And if you don't do that, you risk setting the wrong expectations and then feeling really obligated to continue entertaining your students in a way that isn't really sustainable. Wes, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you for helping us figure out how we might be able to wrap up our cohort-based course. So as we wrap up this episode, I want to personally, again, thank you for the work that you've done and the work that you're doing. You've helped me and the team at SPI create some really, really memorable lessons and experiences for people through our own cohort-based courses. And we're going to continue to do them. It's just such a fun way to do it. And in fact, we had just run one about creating online courses uh, called Heroic Online Courses. And I was just planning on leading the charge on the first one and then letting the team run with the next ones. But honestly, I've loved it so, so much that I'm going to continue to, at least for the foreseeable future, still lead those lessons and and be there because just it was so much fun. So thank you for all of it. I just appreciate it so much. I love hearing that. That really, really makes my day. Thank you, Wes. Maven.com, everybody. And uh, we'll wrap up with the show as we normally do right now. Thanks, Wes. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Wes. Wes is just such an amazing wealth of knowledge, especially when it comes to learning online. And it's no wonder why Seth and her have worked together to create Alt-MBA and now maven.com, where you can go to learn and also create your cohort-based course and be an instructor. Again, M-A-V-E-N dot com. And if you want to check out some of our own things going on where we can help you in this kind of style, I'd highly recommend you check out the courses and the learnings that are available over at smartpassiveincome.com. We'll have links on the show notes. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 513. Again, smartpassiveincome.com slash session 513. We'll also make sure to include links to our programs and stuff in the show notes so you can click on them even right from your device. And thank you all for listening and I appreciate you. And thank you again, Wes, for sharing some of your time with us because I know you're very busy helping new instructors get what they need to crush it with their cohort-based courses. So take care, everybody. Thank you so much. I look forward to serving you this coming Friday in our Friday follow-up episode as well as next week where we have another great interview, something that I actually haven't heard anybody talk about online coming next week. And I hope you enjoy it. It's very, very important. So take care. Thanks so much. Peace out. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income podcast at smartpassiveincome.com. I'm your host, Pat Flynn. Our senior producer is Sarah Jane Hess. Our series producer is David Grabowski. And our executive producer is Matt Gartland. Sound editing by Duncan Brown. The Smart Passive Income podcast is a production of SPI Media. We'll catch you in the next session. Also, today's show is sponsored by AppSumo, the leading digital marketplace for entrepreneurs like you and a great way to get your product in front of over 1 million entrepreneurs, founders, and small businesses. So here's what's going on. They're giving away their entire $1 million Black Friday marketing budget to creators like you. If you have an ebook, an online course, templates, or any other digital products, this is for you. You list your product on AppSumo between September 15th and November 17th. And the first 400 offers to go live will receive $1,000. The next 2,000 will get 250. And everyone who gets listed gets entered to be one of the 10 lucky winners to potentially receive $10,000. So go to AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn to list your product today and cash in on this amazing deal. Again, AppSumo.com slash Pat Flynn. 
link in the description as well. If you enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes, give us a rating, and leave a review. It's Wednesday, October 6th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Alicia Alfieri. Thanks for being here. So glad to be here, Chris. We've got travel. Uh, we're going to talk about which stocks in your portfolio you should be adding to, but we are going to start with the business of alcohol. It was a mixed second quarter report for Constellation Brands, the seller of beer, wine, and spirits had profits that were solidly lower than expected. Revenue was higher, and they raised revenue guidance for the full fiscal year. Let's start here. What stood out to you in this report? Yeah, well, well, first, so revenue net sales grew uh, 5% year over year to total $2.4 billion. So, so pretty impressive here. Interestingly enough, uh, this growth is being driven by their core beer brands, not seltzer or alternative beverage products like we've seen uh, for other alcoholic brands. So let, let's talk about their beer because I think there are some interesting things in here. So uh, second quarter sales grew here 14% year over year, and they've seen strong growth for their core imported beer brands. So their beer business outpaced the total beer category um, and the high-end segment. Modella Especial uh, and Corona Extra have been really driving a lot of the growth here. And the company is really excited about Modelo specifically and their growth potential. So they've said that Modella uh, Especial was the number one brand in the higher end beer category and the number one share gainer in the entire US beer category. So they have a lot of growth here. Um, but as you said, you know what? <sighs> It was a complicated quarter. You know, they the the company was really dealing with some um, supply chain issues. Uh, they've said that one of the biggest issues for their supply chain was the strong ongoing demand that they've been seeing for their products. Um, but they don't expect those short-term supply issues to impact their long-term goals. And they're expecting more normal levels of inventory by the end of the year. Uh, so, so that are those are some positives that that we've been seeing here. Yeah, I think you know this is this is kind of a tricky one because Bill Newlands took over as CEO late spring of 2019. It was clear pretty quickly that he was going to be doing things differently than the previous CEO, and uh, I, I'm not trying to make excuses for him, but. You know, he was starting to execute on that plan and the pandemic hit. So I think if you're a Constellation Brands shareholder, you know, this is a stock that over the past year is up a bit over the last five years, really <laughs> trailing the market. Um, I, I think unless you really need the money, 
this is one that you hold on to and you, you give Bill Newlands another year or so, don't you? Just because it, it, it seems like, I, I don't know. I don't own shares, but I, unless I really needed the money, I think I'd want to give this guy at least one more year to see what he can do. Yeah, absolutely. And they they talked a little bit about his plan for capital allocation, uh, which is really important here. So they're going to be focused on paying down debt, reinvesting in the business so they could have that um, an expansion in, in production capabilities, which is important to meet demand. And, and this is really interesting, they've committed to returning $5 billion to shareholders through share buybacks. They've said that they're, they're buying them at advantageous prices because they believe the share price is undervalued and also by giving um, uh, dividends, right? And so they've estimated that they're about 60% of the way to this goal, which is pretty in, impressive. So I thought that was a really interesting strategy, this focus on capital allocation. Also, they've said that, you know, they're going to be exploring some of, of the, uh, the the seltzer brands and, and some of the innovative products there. They think that that, that market is going to continue to be important. Um, and yeah, so we'll see how they go from here. Yeah, it is. It, it is um... You know, maybe that was the plan all along, um, pre-pandemic, to get into the seltzer market in a significant way. They haven't done that yet, so I think that's that's one more thing to see if they can pull off. Yeah, and it was interesting actually. So, so in. <sighs> Further back, I think we saw a huge growth in the seltzer market. Um, what Constellation talked about on their earnings call today was really interesting. They've said that you know there were a lot of entrants coming into this segment of the market because people are interested there. You know they've seen growth, but the company is expecting that there could be some consolidation activities and that they're really going to look at adding a product that that to them is highly differentiated to be able to be competitive in this in this area. So I think it's smart growth and smart capital allocation. So like I said, I'm excited to see where they go from here. Likewise. Norwegian Cruise Line CEO Frank Del Rio says his company will have 75% of its ships in operation by the end of the year and 100% in operation by April. And I I don't know Frank Del Rio. Um, but I'm much more likely to believe the first part of what he said than the second, just because April really seems like it's a long way away. Yeah, I, I mean, keep in mind that the company only relaunched their first cruise ship in late July, and they've only restarted their U.S. cruises in early August. And obviously, COVID really impacted their business. So in the second quarter, revenues were $4.4 million. Uh, for, for 2021, that's compared to 16.9 million in 2020 and 1.6 billion in 2019, right? So that gives us, that frames our discussion around COVID and, and the ships. Uh, right now they have eight ships running. They have a hundred percent vaccination policy. Um, you know, it, it, it is possible that they could have, uh, Hundred percent of their of their ships running by April. I think it's we're really going to have to take this quarter by quarter to see how it how it goes. How people if people continue to be comfortable traveling on cruises. Yeah, and from the standpoint of the stock, it's basically half of where it was in January of 2020. It's it's only slightly higher than where it was when it went public in early 2013. So, you know, 
it depends on how you want to look at it. You can look at this business and say, oh, well, they've, you know, they've got some room to run here. But uh, I, I don't know. Do, like, do the cruise lines interest you in, in, like in terms of I mean, we're going to get into this more in the in the, our next segment. Um, but do these businesses interest you? You know, I always try to look at companies from the standpoint of of curiosity, right? And and really researching, diving into the to the industry and not letting any any thoughts that I have, any preconceived uh things that, that, that I have really color uh research into the industry. You know, I I think that they definitely have room to to grow after after COVID, right? I mean, th- this last year and a half for them has been really difficult. So it's it's possible that they could get back on track. Um, what they look like in years to come, I, that's that's definitely a question. Quick programming note, it's going to be a short week for us. We are off on Thursday. So by all means, if you're not already listening to Industry Focus, Motley Fool Answers, Rule Breaker Investing with David Gardner, check those out. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Got a great question from John Ross who writes, within a balanced portfolio of 20 stocks or so, say you own a couple of stocks that have done amazing and a couple of stocks that have fallen since you first bought them. If you believe in the future of all four stocks, is it better to buy additional shares in the company that has underperformed or the company that has outperformed expectations? Basically, is it better to buy the dip or add to an existing winning streak? It's a great question. Um, I personally am going through this right now. I am, <laughs> I am looking at my portfolio. I am seeing stocks that, in some cases, have been cut in half from where I bought them, and others that are rock solid market beaters. And I've got some cash, and I'm, I'm sort of trying to decide. Okay, where, where am I going to go with this? Um, to John's question. How can someone get at an answer to this? Yeah, I mean, and, and it is an excellent question. I think it's an age-old question that we're going to continue to to struggle with. I think in in years to come, as as investors, I think this is always an important question to evaluate for yourself, right? So the argument for buying in the dip is essentially kind of like a stock sale. And who doesn't love sales, right? Essentially, if you loved a company at, let's say, $100 share prices, you believe in the company, you believe in the the investment case, you should love it even more at $80 a share, especially if you are are an investor that believes in the long-term view of things and you're all about being in the market for a long time. Um, But there's also an argument to add to your winners that winners will continue to win. And I say... Why, why do you actually have to choose? I think if you believe in both types of companies and the long-term prospects of both types of companies, there's nothing wrong with continuing to invest in both. I think the most important thing is, is to continue to invest, get into that rhythm of saving and investing. Um, and, and remember, the most important thing is time in the market, not trying to time the market to get your you know, lowest price or or whatever. Yeah, I think you know, a reason why you would have to choose could simply come down to cash. Could it could just be sure. like, look, I'm I've got my strategy for adding 
um, to my portfolio and I've got this set amount of money. And so, you know, so one way to look at it is, you know, if you can only add one, uh, add to your winner because, you know, a month or two down the line, uh, somewhere down the line where you have more cash, there's a decent chance that the ones that have fallen below the price at which you bought them are still going to, maybe they're not cut in half, maybe they're only down 20%, but you're still buying them. Um, you're still lowering your cost basis. One of the things I'm trying to do is to essentially just set aside the price and just yeah. try to think about these businesses holistically and and almost rank them like, okay, which ones do I have the most confidence in? You know, aside from the price, um, it's hard to do because, again, as you said, who doesn't love a sale? And if you bought, you know, if you and if you bought, uh, that's the thing about the market. I mean, I know the market, uh, the S and P five hundred has hit new highs more than fifty times this year. There are still really good businesses that are trading. 40 50 percent below their highs which they hit earlier this year yeah absolutely and i would say always keep a list of companies that are on your watch list or your you know to be invested in list and and journal about those companies follow those companies and absolutely invest in the highest conviction companies that you have Uh, before we wrap up um what is one stock that is on your watch list right now one stock that you're just sort of like, I haven't bought shares yet. I'm looking at this. Um, and you don't necessarily need to go into why you haven't pulled the trigger yet. But I'm just curious, what is on Alicia's watch list? Oh, so the, the the number one company for me that's on my watch list. Actually, let me let me rephrase. The one that comes to mind most, most easily. I was about to say, that. holy cow, let me get a pen. <laughs> no, I'm going to no, write this down. No, it's number no, one on your one. list. Not number one. Um, so, yes, watch lists are, are super long. I think a company that, that I've been interested in learning more about is Align Technologies. So, the company that makes the clear plastic aligners. As a, as a kid, I had braces and I hated them. And the market for uh, misalignment of teeth is is pretty big. And so I'm interested in them. So they are one of the, the many companies uh, that I'm interested in, in researching and learning more about. How about that? Nice. <laughs> How about you, Chris? Um, I think I've mentioned this before. One that is on my watch list, um, and I still need to do some more research on, um, is a company that uh, has been talked about in various Motley Fool forums, and that's Lemonade, um, uh, the insurance company. And um, uh, yeah, it's 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 one I just want to do some more research on. I suppose there's, you know, as we say all the time, like you know, one way to do research is to, you know, sort of approach a stock and buy it in thirds because you know, you're gonna. It's human nature just to for investors to be more interested in something once you own shares of it. So there, I, I should probably just um, get it off my watch list and buy a couple of shares and then decide if I want to add to it later. But um, for now, it's still on my watch list. Absolutely. Or even starter positions. So smaller positions, and then you could add to it, as you said, as you learn more about the company, as you deepen your conviction in the company. Alicia Alfieri, great talking to you as always. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday. 
enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. For your Sunday drive, quick conversation about current events, politics, pop culture, and more from the perspective of a couple of guys trying to follow Jesus. I'm Matt Hill. And I'm Nate Polson. Hello there, everybody. Welcome to the Your Sunday Drive podcast. You are listening to Season 3, Episode 11 of our show. Today is October 6th, 2021. Uh, thank you for listening. We're very happy to have you, as always. Uh, today's big topics, uh, well... This show is, as you know, if you've heard, which hopefully you have, if you haven't heard, welcome. Nice to have someone brand new. (laughs) Uh, But if you have listened to us before, usually our show breaks down into sort of two big categories, sort of a politics, current events category and sort of a pop culture category. I guess you can think of it that way. Uh, That's what's happening today. So our big politics, current events kind of topic has to do with um, sort of like, is it time for another uh, civil war? (laughs) <laughs> not, 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 not to be too, not to be too crazy and like in some years have elapsed. Therefore, maybe it's time for another civil war. Well, you'll find out when we get there. But basically, there's a lot of the sense of something like there being two Americas or maybe three or who knows, you know, a sense of disunity in the country, I guess. And we're going to talk about some things that have come up recently that sort of highlight that and that whole topic of sort of. Civil War. It's time for some civil war. Um, the infrastructure bill, the current infrastructure bill that the Democrats and, the, well, I guess everybody is talking about, uh, that's also going to come into that. Recent stuff with Facebook is going to kind of get thrown into that. Uh, and then at the end, we'll talk about some sort of current pop culture stuff. I'm going to try to talk about Squid Game, which is the currently biggest show on Netflix right now. Biggest show in the world, really. About to be the biggest show on that um, platform's uh, history. Um, we might talk about the Gabby Petito thing because that is sort of definitely the in, in the culture right now and sort of those two things almost uh, we're going to try to sort of talk about them together in a way which might seem weird, but maybe it's not once we get there. So anyway, those are our sort of big topics. Um, but why don't we sort of I'm sitting here with Nate, obviously. If you're a first time listener, you don't know who Nate is, but Nate's this other dude that's on this podcast. I'm just the co-host. Well, we're co-co-hosts. <laughs> we're co-equal co-hosts. So I'm Matt. He's Nate. I'm the MC. He's the DJ. That's an old reference. No one gets. Um, anyway, uh, so like Nate, what's been going on with you? We'll do some housekeeping too, but like, how about just a check-in? You said September is like a blur. Or it's something. a blur. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> doing uh, doing a couple, doing two different campus ministries and two two churches right now. So uh, lots of and. Fall, the first three, four weeks of the fall semester on campus ministry is is intense. That's that's your, we're pulling out all the stops and doing everything because the that's where those first three weeks, that's where people are deciding what their routine's going to be for the whole semester. Yeah. And, and so, especially connecting with freshmen, you got to go, go, go. And, and now I'm doing that on two campuses has been, oh, yeah, it's intense. So, uh, yeah, September's kind of a blur, but it's been fun. Uh, yeah. 
when I when I was teaching, I remember that you know the first week or the first few weeks definitely matter, right? Mm-hmm. Here's what this class is like. Here's what I'm about. Here's my syllabus, and find out about the kids. And yeah, definitely tone setting. So I can see yeah. that. Yeah, you're a busy yeah. dude. Um, How about you? Well, I hate to say, you know, everybody just says they're busy. And I guess we're busy, right? Because I have kids and a job and my kids play sports and they go to school and blah, blah, blah. So, um, but mainly, yeah, things are good. I'll just, um, this is not a flex, by the way. But here's the thing that I do all the time now is I get up, uh, and this week it's both my kids. My my son actually, he plays football, but his football team is on like this hiatus because multiple people on the team uh, are COVID positive. So there's no football for the past two weeks. So he's taken it as the as an opportunity to come with me and my daughter to work out at Planet Fitness at 5 a.m. Nate. Wow, 5 a.m. You all can't <laughs> so, see this. Matt is actually literally flexing while he's. This saying is not that a flex. The, the shirts are about to pop. Yeah. The buttons are going to fly off. It's, it's yeah. a Lou Ferrigno situation. <laughs> that is old reference number two. <laughs> anyway, so no, it's not a flex, but it's just something like that's a thing in my life right now is that I'm up at 5 a.m. with both of my kids, which is honestly cool and a blessing. And we're driving to Planet Fitness and lifting weights and then coming back. And anyway, so that's a thing I'm doing. That's a fun, cool thing in my life right now, I guess I would say. Other than that, it's kind of regular, regular stuff, you know. Um, We did have some cool September stuff. Both uh, both of my boys, their birthdays are in September and mm -hmm. our anniversaries in September. So the first part of September, we did lots of fun stuff, lots of fun family stuff, too, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's all the back-to-school stuff. Then go time. Yeah. yeah. My youngest is in kindergarten. They're both loving it. Yeah. So, good stuff. Yeah. Um, well, as far as, like, housekeeping, it's funny because our last episode, we were telling you you should come to our parking <laughs> right. lot party, right. <laughs> which got canceled due to rain. So, now we're going to tell you again. Not just rain. That makes it sound like webs. It was a thunderstorm. Well, right? it was. It was, it was, yeah. It was, like. Tornado That's severe. true. Like it was, right. It, w- it would it not have. a light drizzle. Yeah. It wouldn't, it wouldn't <laughs> have worked. It wouldn't have worked. But. So anyway, now we're going to tell you, come to our parking lot party this Sunday. So That's basically, right. Corner right. of Mackinac, Davenport, and Saginaw, we're going to get some food trucks and hang out in the parking lot, games and music and stuff like that. 4 to 6 p.m., and then you can hang out for church. Nate is in the middle of the greatest of all time sermon series, which I can um, confirm it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Not bad. Uh, <laughs> the last, <laughs> I was going to say episode. Those, those aren't episodes. <laughs> the last sermon, the last message, <laughs> the last episode uh, I'm on season eight, episode like twenty of the Nate Polson Oh man, um, sermon series. I guess if you think of it that way. But anyway, <laughs> it's a lot of seasons. It's a sermon series. It's pretty good. Nate's doing it. So Thanks. I had a lot of fun. It's uh, it's been yeah. yeah. I'd like to think it's the greatest sermon series of all time, but it's the greatest of all time. It's pretty good sermon series. That's what yeah. we're working on. And then this Sunday we're going to be talking about the greatest meal of all time. Nice. Where Jesus broke bread. Is it Chick Fil A? It is not. That's a Christian. That's a Christian thing for some reason. <laughs> yes, but uh, the Eucharist, I think, trumps it. So. That's true. That's true. Okay. Um, so I think that's probably good. Let's try to let's try to get into some actual. Did you say stuff. four to six? Yeah, four to six. Food truck. Right. Yep, four to six this Sunday. Um, okay, so let's try to get into some actual stuff. So, like I said, it's time for a new civil war. Let's do this. Um, no. Uh, but that is kind of the first big topic, and, the, and I'll tell you the reason why is because the idea of this has come up in sort of some specific ways recently, and I'll give you a couple of the specific ways, and then as usual, I'll hand it over to Nate, and he can start riffing and saying whatever he thinks about this topic. We're going to try to get to, you know, from a Christian point of view, what do we think about this 
idea. That's what we are going to try to do. That's what we always try to get to. So, um, so there's a dude named David French, and he's a writer and a podcaster and yada yada. So he put out an article. I think it was called A Whiff of Civil War in the Air, something along mm-hmm. those lines. And he cited a statistic. This is a new survey or a study or whatever that came out. Um, and here's the study, ready, uh, or the stat. A majority of Trump voters, 52%, and a strong minority of Biden voters, 41%, strongly or somewhat agree that it's time to split the country, quote. Time to split the country. So the people that voted for Trump last time, more than half of them think time to split the country. <laughs> so that's a pretty amazing stat. So that's sort of, I mean, it's not just an idea that a few people say more than half of a certain segment of voters think, yep, think time close to, to half of Biden's voters. Yeah, exactly. Um, I also heard another, a guy, a podcaster I listened to, he was talking about Sarah Silverman, who is a, uh, a comic, and she's more of a left leaning you know she's probably pr- pretty left i would say <laughs> you don't say i said left leaning <laughs> she's no, probably she's pretty, pretty left well anyway <laughs> she she got into a little twitter trouble or however this works anymore uh where, where she said something it was something about florida and or texas and it was something like she basically said what if they did just become their own states maybe that's the answer like become their own thing like let just let them go do their own country if that's what they want to do and then David French also cited another article uh, that was called Constitutional Crisis Already Here, uh, which was coming at this, probably bringing in the January 6th thing and some other things and saying, look, we are in a position where something like a civil war, probably not what they would call a hot civil war, right? Mm-hmm. Probably no one's getting guns and it's like going to be California yeah. faces off against. There's going to be some people with guns. That's, that's <laughs> true. There are some people with guns. Well, <laughs> 2020 was the big uh buying guns year the statistics say i'm pretty sure i think a lot of people have guns yeah but maybe not necessarily a, a hot civil war like you know the blue versus gray civil war but right. something like portions of the country trying to split away from each other so that's the topic it's a real it's a real thing it's mm-hmm. coming up um so anyway i don't know if you want to start saying something about that um we'll, we'll bring in some other parts to this but that's the basic pitch yeah i mean that that Sentiment is out there. I mean, if you you think so, seventy five million people voted for Donald Trump. Fifty two percent of that, you know, that's you know thirty six, thirty seven, thirty eight million people. Right. Uh, and eighty million people voted for Biden. Forty percent, forty one percent of that number is, you know, again thirty six, thirty seven, thirty eight million. Yeah. You know, that's not you know yeah it does together. You're right. Getting close to eighty million people who think it's time to split the country up. Right. And, <laughs> You know, that's still a long way from a majority of, you know, it's 30, you know, 330 million Americans, but, you know, uh, 80 million, that's, that's a quarter. Yeah. And that's on, on both sides of these right. extremes. Right? Yeah. So, um, but what, what I thought was interesting about his article, David French's article, and what I think is a whole lot, I mean, we've talked on this show so many times about how it does seem like it's the these extreme voices on either side mm-hmm. uh, that get all this attention and all this press and somehow get to get to speak for this is what conservatives say or this is what liberals say right and I think I, I keep I, I believe and I, I keep wanting to think you know there's this reasonable middle yeah that yep. you know uh, and I, I still many times on the show said I'm conservative I feel like I'm on the right side of on the uh, Right, politically, mm-hmm. on, on a lot of issues. But um, 
not so far that I think we need to to break up the country. There'd be a lot of people. Yeah, you know, give California back to Mexico and <laughs> see right. see what happens, or yeah, uh, give New York to Canada. And, uh, but other people, yeah, like Sarah Silverman, yeah, let Texas do its own thing, let Florida do its own thing, right? Um, but I do, I do wonder about that. You know, when we 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 seem to be in a moment where you you have to pick, like the what is it that that makes a country a country? Right? Mm-hmm. What is it that unites a people? And yeah. there's a there's some kind of common ground usually, and some understanding of what our heritage is, some understanding of of what things we venerate. And it does seem like that, that piece is changing. Like there is a group yeah. of people who are doubling down and saying all of our founder, all of our history, it's all sacred. And all those people were, uh, were super great and super amazing. And, you know, you can't denigrate anything they did or anything they said. They're, they're awesome, awesome, awesome people. And another group of people are saying, well, that same group of people, you know, didn't treat Native Americans so well. Right. didn't treat African-Americans so well. And, you know, and so there's this deep racism that you got to deal with. Mm-hmm. And it's like, so the founders are racist jerks. The founders are, you know, saints that were never did anything wrong. Right. And that, that kind of thinking, I think it's deeply problematic. I think you got to say, you know, they were both right. incredibly... Uh, they laid out the framework for an incredible system of government, and they had devastating blind spots. They had, um, yeah. you know, and and that's not just Mary. I do that with Martin Luther. Anybody like sure. Martin Luther did a lot of great stuff, mm-hmm. but you know he was really not at all right about the stuff he said about right. Jewish people or about Anabaptists. You no, know, he's okay with killing. <laughs> well, the church, the church itself, or people yeah. from the Bible. Um, same type yeah. of stuff. Yeah. The Bible doesn't hide David's flaws, right? right. Or Moses's flaws. Yeah. Like, and so it's this idea that you've got to put these people, like you, you can't. The, and both are messed up too. I think you know to say all they did was was vile. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. you know they came up with a, a pretty amazing system of government, but they did have yeah. these tragic blind spots that you know treated other human beings as property, and that's messed up. Really messed up. Well, I think probably what's driving, you know, right. So like this view of the founders or this view of like the history of the country, Mm -hmm. right. What's driving that there's kind of at least, there's at least two different ways to see that. Um, It's probably right. These deeper understandings of politics, or as you said, I'm trying to get back to what you started with, which was the question is, what is this country like? Mm -hmm. And now I think we're definitely in a position where different people have a different idea about what this country is about in terms of our values, our history, what do we stand for, what's important, you know, if we're going to spend money, what will we spend it on? If we're going to, if we only have 10 bucks, do we spend it on A, B, and C, and we can't ever do D, or is D more important? We bump that up to the top of the list, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's where I think the real issue is. And maybe this is, so here's a devil's advocate question to you, and I don't know what you'll say to this, but like, what would be so wrong about certain portions or states breaking out of the country? And even from a Christian point of view, or from a whatever point of view you want to pick, there's nothing saying that we can't break the country apart. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe I'm. Maybe this is a naive thing to say. No, I mean I think. I mean, in the not that we're advocating civil war, but like, right. there's, there's nothing that says that we can't change the way the country works. I don't know. The Declaration of Independence starts off when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political. No, 
to dissolve. Do it. The, you know. Keep going. <laughs> Can you recite all the numbers in pi? <laughs> <laughs> That's a whole different thing. <laughs> uh, but yes, I mean, the, the Declaration of Independence, the foundational document of the United States of America, starts right. off with the premise that there are, when in the course of human events, yeah. there are times in yeah. human when you dissolve the political bonds between right. one group of people and another. And so it happened before. Why not again? Now, the Civil War, the, re- the real one. The actual <laughs> Civil War, yeah. One, yeah. The, yeah. Um, some people, you know, that saved the Union. and It kept uh, and it freed the slaves. Right. Um, so are there that, is there that kind of justice issue now? Like the, what, what a lot of people felt like necessitated taking up arms was, you know, it started to save the union and, and quickly the cause became to end slavery. Like people, right. at least a lot of people in the North viewed themselves as waging a war to end this evil abomination of slavery that had been tolerated too long. Right. Um, and there isn't that now, like there isn't right. that kind of, these are, uh, there's disagreements, but probably not that level of a thing. Yeah, like one of the things that, you're, you're, that David French article pointed out is that people on these extremists they misrepresent and misunderstand, like how they, they misview, mischaracterize the other side. It's right. their disdain and yeah. uh, what was the other uh, disdain? Well, he says uh, disdain and malice. And malice this is, is this like, is a quote that I'm going to get to it. So go uh, for pretty it. well, I don't need to do it now, okay. but. You're you're leading into sort of the corollary of the section, you know, the a subset of this topic, which has to do with another thing that we've talked about on this uh, podcast a bunch of times. You know, the way the current media environment and social media environment is, it sort of tends to drive this. And what's in the news right now, and has been in the news specifically, is Facebook. And this 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 week, the news has to do with a Facebook whistleblower. And, uh, you know, Facebook knows that it affects people negatively, but it doesn't care because blah, blah, blah. And its algorithms, especially in the election year, served up things that were basically designed to stoke the fires of people not getting along with each other and, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I guess and that's where the, the David French quote comes in, uh, is that, well, he has two points, right? We're not only at a point where we disagree with each other about these fundamental differences in like politics and government and all of that, but it's the way we're doing it, which has to do with malice and disdain, which are, which is the words that he uses. And these are stoked by social media stuff like Facebook. Um, and he basically he says, uh, we are dealing with a spiritual and moral sickness. Malice and disdain are conditions of the soul. Misinformation and deception are sinful symptoms of fearful and or hateful hearts. So, well, now I might as well just finish it. <laughs> one, this is David French. So one of the great tragedies, well, no, hold on. Not, no, I'll stop there because that's when it gets into another point that I would rather end with. So, okay. But the point is, we're not just having little political disagreements. They get to the point of moral things where we hate each other mm-hmm. because we disagree. And then this is stoked by Facebook, social media the media which overblow the disagreement so that's yeah the just what he, you were saying yeah, he yeah. gets to is that people misunderstand people on the far right and the far left if you take the names off of things they they like the same like the, there are a lot of provisions in this infrastructure bill for example that are popular across broad spectrums of america right but um when it's 
when it's it's rolled into a package that's yeah. sponsored by one group. Or if the they other, can see whose know, idea it is, yeah, they automatically yeah. hate. It. And then they don't like it. And yeah. if there's a blind survey just on ideas, there's a lot more agreement than you know, like it was, he was saying. There's a there's this giant number of people on the right yeah. that falsely believe uh, the, the, that have a, a widely skewed understanding of how many Democrats think of themselves as socialists. And the same thing on the left. Right. Uh, well, a lot of people on the left have this way inflated view of how many people on the right are actually fascist or, or lean that way. And right. there's, there is this, because of disdain and malice, because of this deeply entrenched animosity and even hatred that's being refor- reinforced and encouraged by social media yeah. and selective, you know, right wing or left wing, just regular media. Mm-hmm. That's just kind of an echo chamber where reinforcing these stereotypes yep. that's creating bigger divisions because there's a lot of money to be made in advertisers who can target, oh, yeah. you know, there's, that's, I think what's at the bottom of this whole Facebook controversy. It, yeah, you would, you would hope that it can't be anything sort of worse than that <laughs> <laughs> because right. What else could it be? Like either they're just trying to make more money, which I guess is a virtue in some certain sense. If you're just like a pure straight up cap capitalist or whatever you want to make money, that's fine. But you know, if there's some, like who is it that their their mission statement is don't be evil? Is it Google? One of those big tech companies or Apple maybe? One of those big don't tech companies. Yeah, that was their thing. That's don't the be evil. Yeah. <laughs> but today I heard Facebook called the the evilest com- uh, company in the world. Because I think some people start to think maybe it isn't just money. Maybe these are maybe there's something deeper underneath and that starts to get like conspiratorial like Mark, Mark Zuckerberg is some sort of a uh, I don't know, Evil just troll design. down in a weird tech, <laughs> tech cave and he's trying to take over the planet. I mean, <laughs> I'm not saying all that, but like, is really money, like that's all it takes to do something that... Now, of course, they have their response, right? I read what Mark Zuckerberg had to say in response to this. I think I read it this morning. So he has all sorts of things to say in response to this. Okay. It's we're not in trans- our interest. Yeah, we're transparent about the research. We know that it, certain things are bad for people. We've switched our algorithm. We, we're trying to make it not be blah, blah, blah. But then, of course, people come back and say, no, no, no. Um, but anyway, the, the, there has to be something to all the division and the media, social media stuff is driving it, period. Like, it's complicated, but that alone, I think you can say that. That's pretty seems pretty clear to me. Yeah, so like back to the... The question you ask, is mm. it time for, or what, what's so wrong for mm. states to break away? Mm. Like on its face, nothing. The Declaration of Independence sets out the premise that that happens mm. sometimes. And uh, Great Britain didn't like when the colonies said this This is one of those times in the course of human events. Oh, where I remember we, from Hamilton, he was yeah. very upset. King George didn't like it. He sent over some ships and you'll be back. Yeah, so that was a great song. What a great show. That anyway, really, go ahead. Yeah, and so... <laughs> You know, if if Texas left or if California left or yeah. whatever, I mean, there'd be some people in America, whichever, depending on whichever side, you know, you know, California leaving its 54 electoral votes that are pretty solidly Democrat. Texas leaves its, you know, a, a large number of electoral votes that are pretty solidly right. Republican. So either one of the large states leaving would, would change the right. The, uh, oh, it would, yeah, that's. But on its surface, you know, maybe you say, yeah, that'd be OK. But is that necessary According to this research, no, because people are misunderstanding how far away from each other mm-hmm. the other sides are. Yeah. And if people would just kind of lower the temperature a little bit, right. uh, which is what President Biden said he was going to try to do, mm-hmm. um, and hasn't hasn't worked. I don't know how much he's really tried because it seems like a lot of the stuff he's 
been doing has not been designed to lower the temperature. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I think what would happen? Well, the United States economically would be, you know, less would poorer if these big states leave. Yeah. Um, which might negatively impact the, the smaller states that don't like those. Well, but theoretically, if we don't have to worry about those bigger states, we have less money that we need to spend anyway. So That's hopefully true. it all I mean, washes out. Because right? a lot of those smaller states don't want the federal dollars anyway. I mean, I mean I'm like, no economist, but yeah. it seems like. <laughs> and you said, you know, these different competing priorities. What if we have $10? You know, how are we going to. The U.S. Congress hasn't worked that way. We've got $10. We're going to spend 25 anyway. Right. Right. And that's how it's been working, which is a big problem for, yeah. you know, uh, a fiscal conservative mm-hmm. like myself to say, someday that bill's going to come due. What and now we got to fight about the debt ceiling every six yeah. months. Why don't I try? Because we're kind of we're kind of uh, flirting around this other this second topic anyway, and then I and then I'll try to come back to the the David French thing at the very can end. I, How about can I finish that? up one other point? From sure. Our, but then go to the infrastructure, All right. the current thing, because that's related to this, right? What are we going to spend our money on? We're going to spend the most money we've ever spent. What are we going to spend it on, right? I mean, it's very related, right? Because a lot it of is. people see that totally. It is. But then there's the, one other thing that you were asking about. Is it time for a civil war? When I was talking about, you know, some, on the left, the far left, you know, people are, are viewing the founding of the country. You know, it's almost like America is this evil thing mm-hmm. that we have to address all the wrongs of the past. And, um, and so we have to fundamentally change America because right. of its tainted past yeah and people on the on the right and the far right say, you know america is the best country in the world it's always been the best country sure. in the world no other country is, is like this This is a traditionalist and, versus progressive type yeah. of a divide yeah uh-huh. yeah for sure and and in both of those like if if you refuse to acknowledge the sins of the past and you know try to see if we can correct some things so we don't repeat those you know i don't necessarily think that correcting necessarily means that you 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 try to you know go backwards and and stuff that happened 200 years ago 150 mm. years ago so um, no reparations but, i'm reading you yeah i mean i think that <laughs> that, that gets difficult but and, no, and don't tear down the statues uh i think i mean statues are current thing i don't really have that i'm just trying to get us i'm just trying yeah. to, i'm putting words no. in your mouth as to what you probably mean no yeah so for me yeah i'm not big on reparations but i don't think i, I have no problem tearing down confederate statues i think confederate statues, i mean those are those you know, yeah. from if you're strictly American, those are traitors. And so, yeah. and not only traitors, but those, a lot of those were erected in the Jim Crow era to, you know, kind of intimidate. Or you're trying to, yeah, you're trying to stake out some kind of middle ground between, it's not that America's irreparably horrible and we need to tear down the system and rebuild. You're not like saying some progressive, super quote unquote woke thing like that. But you're also not saying... America's the great, you know, flag waving in the background. America's the greatest country in the history. I mean, maybe we are in some sense, but you know, you're also not saying we're perfect and that we shouldn't change not anything perfect, either. Yeah. I mean, it's some kind of middle of the road. I think what the founding fathers did is remarkable. I think it, yeah. the the system of government they designed in the the circumstances. I, I think it is uh, an amazing achievement in human history. I yeah. think there were. I some get that sense of glaring it, from what I omissions. Know. I mean, to mm-hmm. to say, yeah, you know. African-Americans are three-fifths of a person uh, right. to leave chattel slavery in place and to justify the breaking of treaties after treaty after treaty with Native Americans. All those things are shameful, terrible, right. and uh, a black mark on the record. And so um, I, I say both those things. I think those are both true things, that America has uh, a lot to be 
proud about in terms of the system of government and the founding fathers were extraordinary in mm-hmm. their vision and, and what they did with some staggeringly warped uh, blind spots that, you know, I don't even, you know, the men, other, you know, there were men of their time. There were plenty of other men of their time mm-hmm. who had rejected slavery and saw, well, John Wesley was one. He opposed the American Resolution, revolution mm-hmm. because are you guys talking about freedom, you know, equality and you're, the people writing this stuff, they're, you're holding slaves. I mean, right, John right, Wesley right. at that time and yeah. lots of other people said that's incongruent. You can't do that. So, yeah. you know, they, they devised this system, but they were, you know, they were the elite and they were writing it for, in a sense, yeah. elite people. And yet what they put in place, you know, led to a pretty, pretty unique thing that happened in human history. Yeah. And then the influence of the United States spread around the world. A lot of, a lot of democracies, a lot and for good and for bad. I think sure. that I think if you love your country and you, you are a patriot, you, you, you got to see the good and the bad, right? And you work to fix yeah. the bad and, and, you know, but if it's all just holy and righteous and there's, you know, this, everything happened in America, just exactly the way right. God drew it up. Yeah. And he gave the, you know, there was the covenant with Moses and then Jesus came and then George Washington. You know, and if, if you got that kind of idea, that's pretty messed up. Um, right. But if if it's all about, you know, America's the evil empire and, and you got to tear it down, and I'm, I'm not there either. Well, and as you were saying, part of the issue here when it comes to this whole, you know, maybe it's time to split the country or whatever, it has to do with your, your hearing from, as you said, the fringe. The fringe is getting fringier. <laughs> and so that's driving a lot of this. And then the media plays into it because the fringe is easier to what set, you know, it's easier to, to get them going. It's either easier to trigger them, right? Not a ton of stuff will, not a ton of stuff will trigger me, especially straight up political type content. But if you have a real specific type of a political view, you can get triggered by way more stuff, way easier. And then it, who knows, it drives you to actually do something different. You start to try to convince people that you're right about whatever the thing is. And so it's different depending on, if that's you're probably fringy a good self-check. <laughs> like that's yeah. maybe something you can recommend. Yeah, if you find yourself getting triggered easily, uh-huh. and like, and you get real hot, mm-hmm. real mad, mm-hmm. real bothered by something you see on social media or mm-hmm. you know, some, you know, and you're getting angry about this stuff in a, yeah. in a visceral kind of way, that's probably something you want to check in the mirror. It's like red flag about, like, category. Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe you have let political stuff or mm-hmm. government become an idol in your life because the, uh, you know, there that. Right. Especially for a Christian, from a per- Christian perspective, mm-hmm. if we are convinced, which I am, and I know you are, mm-hmm. that however it all pans out at the end, Jesus comes back and Jesus wins mm-hmm. and sets up a new heaven and a new earth on on earth, mm-hmm. then I don't need to worry about it. It's, right. it's not an excuse for being passive you right. know, or just not being engaged and praying about things and having an opinion and talking to people. But if right. I'm getting angry mm-hmm. and if I am, if I find myself full of disdain and malice yeah. for other people who are made mm-hmm. in the image of God, even if I disagree with them poli- politically yeah. and I have this saying, I hate them. I want them, I want them destroyed. I want them interred. I want them, sure. you know, then that, that the problem now is you, right? right. <laughs> That's how you're feeling. You have left the well, faith. Say, uh, be, before we sit on that, right. because this is kind of the David French last point I wanted to make, but do you have like a, th- a three-minute riff on the whole current infrastructure build debt ceiling issue and how that ties in what we were just talking about. Don't don't do a ton with it because now we're gonna start to run long. But 
Yeah. I we'll think come it, back to the David French thing because what you were just saying, I think, is what I want to end with, which is, right. All right. Yeah. So the the debt ceiling is understand. You know, every every year or something, the Congress has to say we have to. You know, the phrase is we got to pay our credit card bill, right? Mm-hmm. We got to pay what we borrowed last time to keep the government going. Mm-hmm. And so usually this is a, a bipartisan deal or because both parties contributed to the debt. Uh, so, and here both, both parties are just playing games. I mean, we are being led in my mind so poorly by, mm. uh, by leaders in both parties. Like the, the two party system has, I think come to the end of its useful life mm. <laughs> in terms of how it, I think, I think that we either need another party, uh, maybe two other parties so that there'd be, and, you know, parliamentary type governments, which you, when you have multi-party, you know, they're, they are less stable. I mean, they, they have votes of confidence all the time and they're changing governments all the time. So there is a risk there, but this, when we have this kind of gamesmanship that's happening on a regular basis now, hmm. it just kind of shows, I think, you know, Mitch McConnell wants the Democrats to raise the debts. He knows the debt ceiling has got to be raised. He wants the Democrats to do it uh, on their own. So because, that it looks, so that it looks, so it's an optics thing, right? Yeah, because then yeah. they can get the, they can do this voterama thing, and they can tie, you know, make people vote for, vote on real controversial stuff, so they can use them in political ads, right? And the Democrats do the, I mean, they're, they are, you know, there's been no conversation, like all the conversation about the infrastructure bill, is tied to this larger bill, Build Back Better, right? That Biden yeah. and the Democrats want to pass with three point five trillion and. And all the focus has been on Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, right. these moderate Democrats, who they want to get on board. Like, not at all even talking about, like, if, if the, the $1.2 trillion already passed the Senate with plenty of Republicans, and in the House, like, Nancy Pelosi isn't even thinking, well, what if I made this so I didn't need that huge progressive cock? I could get enough Republicans to get on board and pass it. And, and that, that isn't even a consideration. And the Republican leadership is also not helping because there's plenty of Republican members in Congress, like the Chamber of Commerce, which is a traditional Republican ally, came out and said, yeah, that infrastructure bill is great. The one that passed the Senate, vote on that. And Kevin McCarthy says, well, they're not with us anymore because we want to, you know, we don't want to give Joe Biden any kind of win or right. there's, and, you know, there, and then there are the, the real budget hawks who say, you know, we, and this is where I think, I think that there should be a balanced budget amendment that Congress can only spend what it takes in. And that includes the interest on the debt and, and some mm-hmm. kind of fiscal responsibility. But that's where these, these on the far side of this. So there are people who say America is the richest country in the world, which, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we should be able to do all this stuff. And other people saying we've got $28 trillion debt. And right. we can't keep spending more money than we take in. And so then that's where this fight on raise the taxes uh, you know, on the rich and, and yeah. all this stuff kind of kind of comes in. Well, it sounds to me like, right, to tie it back into the earlier part, right, what you have. So you said the two-party system is sort of maybe run its course. My understanding of government, at least the way our government is supposed to work a little bit, is that it's supposed to, it's like intentional gridlock in a sense with yes. checks and balances yeah. so that you end up with something more down the middle that actually reflects what people want. It's true. But you're saying that maybe we're to the point where the two sides, you know, that 
the two sides that in the government that supposedly represent what's shaking out to be sort of two broad sides of the electorate, they're too, again, they're too fringy now so that they're not actually, and it's all just this political game, so they're not going to get anything done. Or if they do, they're getting it done, quote unquote, so that they can use it as sort of like ammunition for the next election cycle so that they can take more power and Right. I mean, it's some cynical thing like that, right? That's what's going it does, down. Because <laughs> our system is designed to reward that now. This is what I mean yeah. about the two-party system being at the end of its useful life, because the two parties have been at work drawing the districts. This is really, like so many things, the, the, there are so many reasons. Yeah. There's not just one or two reasons yeah. that we're in the situation where it's yeah. not because of the radical left mm-hmm. or the evil right. Mm-hmm. You know, because It's because They're all for, decades, it. yeah. for decades, what we've done is we've, we've had these this two, these two parties who one or the other is in control of state legislatures and at the end of every census, then they get to design the districts mm-hmm. in their state who, for who who is going to be the state reps, right. uh, uh, the U.S. representatives. And so these, these districts have been drawn to be safer and safer for either Democrats or Republicans. And when you have the primary system, you get the most Republicaniest Republican or, or the most Democraticist Democrat yeah. you know, in these right. really solid Democrats. And, and so you can't get, in a lot of places, a reasonable person elected because yeah. they won't make it out of the primary. Yeah. And so that's not true everywhere. I mean, that's a wild. So they have to play. So to even get elected, they have to be fringy is what I hear you saying. In some of those districts. And that's a wild overgeneralization. But yeah. it, it, there's a lot of folks that if, if their districts, there's a lot of folks in the U.S. Congress that if their districts were more purple right, right. Uh, they wouldn't be there you know they, they'd have to be a more moderate more reasonable they'd have to think about representing you know 60 or 70 percent of their constituents rather than the 35 percent who show up real fired up for a primary mm-hmm. so we've yeah. got yeah so we've got a lot of people who play to the base and ignore the yeah. middle yeah i i have a quote here too because we we talked about this before we we were passing some articles around about this sort of topic a little bit too. So Andrew Yang, who's a dude who ran for president. So most people probably know who that is. He just became an independent, right? Which is interesting. You sent me that article. So he wrote, I think it's the beginning part of a book he's putting out, but he talks about, he says, so this is a quote. He says, uh, he talks about something called constructive institutionalism. And then he says, a tendency among leaders to state publicly and even hold the belief that everything will work out despite quantitative evidence to the contrary, coupled with an inability to actually address a given institution's real problems. Now, that's just a quote that sort of talks a little bit. But if you read this whole article, which you could go and find, he basically talks about what you were just saying, which is that politicians are almost like, they almost become mouthpieces for certain views or certain groups of people. And they, they're just saying the thing, even though, and they're, even though they know that when it comes down to actually changing something about what they're talking about, probably not. <laughs> it's just <laughs> saying the things. Uh-huh. And a lot of this infrastructure debt ceiling, like I can't even, you know, I have a sense of the deal, but it's almost like, right, government becomes this like a, like a so far removed from what the regular people are doing. Did you just sort of let it happen? It's like this oligarchical whatever. I don't know. And our structure will reward, like I said, with these uh, yeah. these kind of gerrymandered districts where people can can be real real safe. Yeah. What what gets you reelected is not so much what you get done. It is your verbiage about right. 
that that makes people who are going to vote for you in the primary yeah. really fired up. Yeah, so you, you become a vessel for their whatever. Yeah, that's our guy fighting exactly. for us. It doesn't yeah. matter that completely incompetent in legislating. And now I read an article about this. Like, I mean, there are there are people in Congress that they don't know how the government. They don't know how to. They're just they said all the right stuff. Sure. Had enough of the potlucks and and little county meetings, and they they win the primary, and then mm-hmm. whoever wins the primary is going to win that Democratic seat, or who's going to yeah. win that Republican seat, and then we, so we reward that uh, rhetoric rather than accomplishment. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. for some people, just frankly, especially for the conservatives, the accomplishment can be obstruction. Because you don't want right. the government spending more money, you don't want the government more involved. In That's life. true. You want to stay out. So, especially for uh, the people on the right. Yeah. Right. I'm I'm stopping the liberals from yeah. spending all your money. Yeah. yeah. For and sure. so I mean, and there's something like when you're talking about a 28 trillion dollar deficit or something like that. I mean, there's mm-hmm. you know like get yeah, Congress has already spent too much more money. Well, let <laughs> so, me uh, let me get back to this David French thing to try to wrap it up a little bit, and then we'll try to move on to one more segment of stuff. So. Let me start from the beginning of the David French quote, and we'll get to the end where he brings up his his big point. This will be a good way to wrap up this section, I think. So he says, uh, we are dealing, this has to do, this is the article, whiff of civil war. He says, we are dealing with the spiritual and moral sickness. Malice and disdain are conditions of the soul. Misinformation and deception are sinful symptoms of fearful and or hateful hearts. One of the great tragedies of our time is that a nation oppressed by malice and misinformation should be ready to receive a Christian message of love and truth. It's exactly now that a healthy church should be a beacon in the darkness. Yet, is that truly the Christian presence in our political culture? Uh, so, I don't know how you'd like to answer that. To me, that just feels like a rebuke. Like, that's a, uh, your response to that should be that you feel convicted. I mean, the answer to me to this rhetorical final question is no, because there's a lot of linking. I don't want to say a bad thing about Trump or whatever. Because I don't, there's no reason to talk about that anymore. But the tie between Trump and evangelicalism continues to be established, and it continues to be this weird thing. So I still think that when people think of the church right now, they think of particular political views and approaches that maybe do not seem like they have to do with a Christian message of love and truth. <laughs> so, like his point is. We're in the middle of all this fringy right versus left. There's going to be a civil war stuff. The church should be able to step up and have, this is when our message should shine, but is it? So, so I don't know your thoughts on that. I think the authentic gospel does, and I think yeah. there are plenty of churches. And that's fair. Right. It's still out there. Yes. I'm saying it's, in a, in a large, very visible sense, it doesn't seem to be. But you're right. So that's a good, yeah. Yeah, because that's where, it, yeah, you know, the the conversion the invitation to the gospel to the authentic christian gospel the message of jesus the real jesus that's going to come when somebody in a cubicle turns to the person in the cubicle next to them and invites them to lunch and mm-hmm. you share life and or you're, you know you're you're with your coworker, you know at the checkout line or you're you know watching your your son's swimming lesson and there's a person sitting there watching their kid's swimming lesson and like neighbor to neighbor person to person when Christians are out there being salt and light. Yeah. And that that is the even the people on the other team, right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of the point. <laughs> yeah. Even the people on the quote yeah. unquote other team. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And so yeah. Christians, I think, have to demand that the whoever they give their political allegiance to 
is a truth teller. Like I, I do think that's important. I think mm-hmm. that um, if if you're following somebody, you're you're supporting somebody who's who's wildly inaccurate, right? Uh, statements right. and you know inflammatory statements. I think you know if you're going to be publicly supporting a a candidate, mm-hmm. um, then at least do no harm, right? Uh, at least do no harm to the yeah. Christian message. People know you're a Christian, and you're going to be loudly and publicly supporting. Uh, a, a candidate for political office. Well, I think, you know, that's a little dicey, maybe anyhow, mm-hmm. but make sure they're a person that, you know, that's not going to confuse people. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that's hard to do. I mean, I think I've said on here, you know, I don't think either, I mean, I think both political parties are pretty full of people who don't fit that bill. Right. <laughs> but, um, but well, there are some people in yeah. both groups who, who do, I think, you know, are are people that you could uh, support. But yeah. staying out of the political thing, just Christians being Christians and yeah. loving our neighbor, serving our neighbor, not being obnoxious. Yeah. Being well, maybe that maybe that's part of the answer. Just tone down the. I mean, you can be political. You can have opinions about it, but it's certainly like when you think of what's driving my life. It seems like it should be your faith drives. Everything, that's the starting point. Then maybe your politics and everything flow from there. But if it gets flipped, then people yeah. get the wrong ideas. You start to act wrong and see things wrong anyway. Mm-hmm. If your politics are first, and then all of a sudden your faith somehow falls in line after that. And that's why I think what you brought up is, is to check yourself. Like if mm-hmm. you're getting triggered by political stuff and you're like, you know, culture warrioring it up and just firing <laughs> off <laughs> just posts on, and yeah. tweets and. Yeah. And, and sharing like crazy. just on Facebook, changing the world. Yeah, like that. <laughs> check yourself because that isn't yeah. isn't the thing. That isn't. No, I, I, you know, I uh, and there is there have been plenty of people who have written about the religious fervor that people have when they're attending rallies on the right or the left. Oh, you know, totally. And have turned. Um, I mean, there was a guy who studies cults, and he was talking about the political um, campaigns and political action on both extremes and mm-hmm. there's it's a religion you know and it, and there are some are and both so i mean there's for sure progressives who are couching their thing in, in kind of a holy war kind of you know oh for sure jesus is all about this or that and they're for, you know on the right yes. too jesus is all about this you know uh and it isn't you know jesus wasn't here to set up an earthly kingdom and as great as i think america is uh jesus wasn't all about the united states of america you know we if you're a Christian, you take sure we have a global mandate. We have a mm-hmm. global uh, commission, and the, the worries and the the you know I've got plenty of political opinions. You know I'm fascinated by I love it. I just mm-hmm. uh, watch it and think about it a lot. But at the end of the day, that is not well, I, whatever happens here. Whatever happens right. in Washington D.C. Yeah. Jesus is still on the throne. I got my marching orders from him. Right. And Democrat, Republican, Independent. I love you. Mm-hmm. I'm here to serve you. Right. Uh, I'm here to, uh, to try to point you to Jesus, and, and I'm here to learn from you too. You know, I, mean, I don't have all the answers, and you know, there's been plenty of times where somebody I really disagreed with showed me something that yeah uh, I was better off because of. So that's I this think, is the, the point of the podcast where we always get to where I just wonder how do people not just listen to an episode and they get to about this point and they're like these guys got it all figured out. <laughs> These guys, these guys see it correctly. It's like we start off with this fraught topic, and by the end, it all kind of makes sense. Well, 
That's really nice. Maybe we should get some t-shirts made up. <laughs> you know why? Because we're just two guys trying to follow Jesus. Keeping it simple. <laughs> I think I said last episode, anytime we're, anytime we're right, it's because it's not our ideas. <laughs> Amen. Yeah. If anything, that's and that's like, for real, too. That's we like, do. I'm we not pray saying before that we just, record this every time, right? I'm not just saying it to be cute. Like, if we're yeah. saying something true, that's it's not because we said it or because it's our truth. Yeah. That's right. Anyway. If this is a blessing to you, it's See it not correctly. because of us, it's yeah. because of Jesus. It's yeah. the Holy Spirit. All right. Well, let's do a hard veer. Right. Uh, so, we'll do a hard veer into sort of some pop culture type stuff. Mainly, I want to talk about this, this show, Squid Game. But I do want to talk about... I. I the other big news thing over the past month has been this uh, Gabby Petito thing where this, uh, you know, this woman went missing and then there was all this social media stuff because she was on Instagram and YouTube or her and her, I don't need to probably recap who it is, but um, I put it in this section because it's broadly in our culture, right? And it almost becomes, and this is kind of my question and this is why I bring it up here. It almost becomes pseudo entertainment, right? To follow the Gabby Petito disappearance and where's her boyfriend? And oh, now the dude's sister speaks out to 60 Minutes and uh, Dog the Bounty Hunter is in the Everglades tracking him or whatever. It like becomes this thing. It becomes like the O.J. Simpson trial or like, I don't even know what, you know, Geraldo Rivera is out in the jungle with like a microphone trying to look, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like. Is he really? I don't know. Probably it's like no, but but the point is like, and I I'm not joking. I mean, it's a sad situation. Obviously, it's not like it's a joking thing, but it's just fascinating how every once in a while something like this comes up in our culture, and all of a sudden it's like an entertainment thing that we didn't know. And I guess I I want to and I want to talk about that in relation to Squid Game a little bit, um, because I guess I don't know. I, I guess I just want to ask you the open ended question. You know. What is our fascination with this kind of a thing? Like, why do we do that? And is there a Christian sort of way to think about that? Like, when we get caught up into one of these true crime, real-life true crime stories that's in the news, like, why do we do that? And how should a Christian think about that, I guess? That is a good question. That's... um... I might not be the right person to ask about this. I'm, when those things happen, I mean, it's tragic. You know, obviously yeah. for her family, I pray that her family is right is experiencing you know somehow the comfort of God in the midst of this uh, tragic loss. But I, to me, all that sensationalized stuff, I, I kind of scroll past it because mm-hmm. I think you know whoever that's aimed at, it's it's something, not me. So so <laughs> what like, is it in you that's making you say no? Like what? What did? What is it in you that doesn't give into that? Like lurid? Because I guess it doesn't. Like uh, that's sad, but there, you know, it's horrible. But there are thousands, tens of thousands, probably of people every day who, who die, and mm-hmm. you know, there are thousands of crimes, and, and that's that's awful. It's terrible, and there's nothing I can do about it, mm-hmm. other than pray for the family. Like there's no, you know, Brian Landry isn't Laundry isn't anywhere near me, right? And, um, you know, if there asking the public for help or something, you know, have you seen this person call this number? That makes sense. But to right. go into every, you know, I scroll past the headlines because, you know, oh, well, what the police missed about Gabby and Brian's interaction or mm-hmm. here's, yeah, I just, I, I, I'm not, I don't know if I want to say I don't care because that sounds callous because of this family's grieving. But, yeah. you know, the, I've read some articles about missing white woman, woman syndrome and, you know, mm-hmm. there are plenty of, of non-white women who are also missing and, and you know, they don't get this kind of attention. And mm-hmm. I think, well, I'm not sure, you know, 
it, it, is it a national news case? Like it's, it, I don't know. Like, I don't know. It's so I think, why do people get, I think it's entertainment. I think you're right. I think right. people get into it and you know, there's some kind of voyeuristic or, yeah. you know, it's, it's not maybe a good impulse. Yeah. And there's a whole series of like, there's John Bonet Ramsey or Elizabeth Smart, or I mean, you can go through it like, oh, yeah, list these people that whoever that girl was in uh, Aruba, you know, a few years ago, was that that yeah. disappeared? Holloway, Lindsay Holloway, yeah, that these names that just kind of come up and you didn't know anything about them, yeah, other than they're young and pretty and missing and something terrible happened to them. And I, but yeah, why it, I think. It does. I mean, if it if it le- leads, it leads, right? I mean, there's some kind of well, yeah, sensationalized. Yeah. Uh, I think you're answering the question, and you're also saying sort of what a Christian-y take on it would be. I know that we have talked about on this show at some point, like we took. I think we maybe it was the episode where we talked about how to be newsproof, and then we yeah. had some article that talked about if it isn't a local story to you, it's probably worth. If it doesn't affect you, if it's not part of your local news. Maybe it's not even a thing for you to pay attention to at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and right, I think that that's probably a good, it's certainly a healthy way to look at it. In a certain sense, you almost don't want to, well, I, I don't want to say you don't want to judge people's like what they choose to be entertained by uh, the true crime sort of um, scene, I guess. Like it's very popular, right? Like people yeah, have always been interested in sort of true crimey type stuff. And maybe in a sense, there's nothing wrong with that. Like I guess you want to let people find entertainment in the way that they want to but i don't know it does seem like there's something to it maybe there's a healthy way to be interested in that stuff but in an unhealthy way i guess i'm not sure that's why i'm asking the question yeah it's interesting i mean people are like i mean people in the the roman days they, right you know, the, gladiator stuff. the gladiators stuff that's what i thought yeah. about because i wanted to say something about oh it's our current culture blah 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 and yeah. sure, maybe our current culture changes it again because of the internet and social media and stuff. But right, the gladiator game. Yeah. It's not like this is new. It's the same impulse. And it yeah. wasn't that just, just 2,000 years ago. I mean, yeah. uh, not that long ago in this country, executions were public, right? You'd go to a hangar. Right. And, right. Uh, you know, throughout Europe through, and here, executions were public and people would take their picnic basket and they would watch somebody hang. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so I think there's something. You know, maybe it's, you know, you pass a, a wreck on the street and you just like, you look like there's something, mm-hmm. I don't know, fascinating and macabre. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, a peek behind the veil kind of a moment where like, it's a flirting with your own mortality in a way, right? Like that could have been me and there's something very human about that and maybe even healthy in a sense to be reminded that, <laughs> you know, death stalks outside your door at any given moment. There's something about being aware of your own death that is a healthy thing, I think. You don't want to be, like, uh, obsessive about it, mm-hmm. but but is that what people are doing when they just, like, pour over the details of this girl's life and her boyfriend and all this? Probably not. It's probably other stuff, too, but... And there's, I mean, I guess there's something, like, like there's a nationwide manhunt, so I suppose, like, there's some usefulness for authorities if everybody knows Brian Laundrie's face and... You know, you see yeah. him at the Seven Eleven. You're like, "Hey, I just saw this guy." I suppose and, that's true. You know, so maybe there's something there, but uh, and that is mysterious. I mean, there's some kind of element of interest. Yeah, did he, did he skip the country? Did his parents help him? Like uh, all this stuff. Yeah. But it's it's that gets to entertainment. Like every, if if you're sitting around the water cooler at your job talking about Brian Laundry and where he might be, you know, I, that 
to me, it seems like you've gone into the entertainment. I mean, you, you are For sure. following the story. You know, you're not trying to help us solve a crime. <laughs> no, I think very, I think, I mean, I appreciate you trying to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, but I mean, let's be honest. I think people, right, people are just fascinated by it. And I'm always interested when people, you know, get into something like, you know, I'm interested in why, why do people, I mean, I feel like that's part of what we're doing on this show. The, the Christian worldview tells you people are a certain way. People are this way and here's why we do what we do and stuff like that. So it's always interesting to try to understand why, why are people doing what they're doing? And from a Christian point of view, what's po- what makes sense about that? What's positive about it? Maybe what are not so positive things and all of that. But anyway. and I suppose it's always talk about the power of the media. Like I have kind of actively tried to avoid the story. Yes. <laughs> but I know all the characters and I know. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Thing. You can, you hardly can. It's yeah, all over it's, everything. Yeah, you know? on my phone, I got, you know, the yep. AP and, and mm-hmm. local news and CNN and Fox News and, yeah. and all these like sending alerts and. Maybe I need to, I over once in a while, think, do I need to re, rethink what's happening here with my Well, phone? you probably don't. I mean, we were talking about this on Messenger earlier. You know, there's a fine line between, like, you want to kind of know what's going on in the world, but at the same time, there's probably a lot of information that you do not really need, and maybe a little bit of removal from it is not, you know, taking a step back is not so bad. That's always something I think about. And our phones obviously just make it, I mean, you're hardly, you have to actively disconnect. And mm-hmm. this is not news to anybody. Well, let me just real quick, because we're getting to the point here where we'll be done. Uh, I do want to talk about this this uh, show on Netflix, Squid Game, and it's related, right? Um, without spoiling any. Do you know very much about the show? Not much at all. So this is, you're going to have to, I, I know the premise is poor people have to compete in child games for money, right? <laughs> kind of, yeah. So, not... <laughs> so this is a series on Netflix. The reason why it's relevant, once again, the reason why we're talking about it is because it's the it's a, it's about to be the most watched show ever on, on Netflix, which is... You know, so we're talking millions of people worldwide. So a lot of people, for whatever reason, are very interested in this. It's a Korean uh, drama series, right? I so mean, it's like it's, subtitles. It's subtitles and everything. Wow. Apparently, there's a little bit of controversy on that the subtitles were not done very well to the point that you miss some of the underlying. You like you actually don't get the full on story because some of the mistranslations apparently were so bad. I'm not a. I don't speak Korean, so I couldn't tell you. But <laughs> but without it, you've enjoyed the show. Is it? Oh yeah, I think it's probably real little fine line nuancey stuff. Where like if you really spoke Korean, you'd really understand the depth of it. But you probably get. We don't like nuance that. in this show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's stupid. <laughs> if he said love, it must mean they went on a date. You know. Anyway, so. Um, oh, do you see how I just went into a pseudo-Southern accent for two seconds when I was saying something dumb? What's that about? I apologize, our listeners in the South. We're going to hear from Arkansas. <laughs> yeah, anyway, so it's the show which, as you said, the characters are sort of uh, in debt, and they end up caught into this Kafka-esque weird secret society game where they have to compete in basically what are, I mean, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't seen the show, most people I think get, get a sense of it, but... They have to compete in basically death matches where people die these very hyper-violent deaths in these games. But eventually there's a winner and this person gets all this money. And there's a lot more involved in it. And so this is part of the contract. It's, it's, I'll just tell you that I thought it was very cool. I was very into it. I get that the violence is an issue with it. That's so it's pretty graphic. It is super graphic. It's shot. It's very visually striking in terms of the set and the colors used and how everything looks. And everybody's wearing these weird outfits. And so it's very striking in terms of that. Um, 
But yes, super violent. I've said the same thing about like Tarantino stuff on this podcast before where I think when the violence happens, it's shocking intentionally to like, it's intentionally shocking you. It's punctuation marks. The question that I would ask, and I think I've asked this before is, you know, I would have a problem with the show if I thought that the show was about the violence. Like we were talking about the Gabby Petito thing, right? What is that about? Like, what is the positive thing that someone might be getting out of that? It's harder to say. But with this show Squid Game, right, if you're into it because it's hyper-violent, maybe that's not so good. It is hyper-violent, but I don't think it's about the violence. As I usually do, I think that this show has a lot of things underlying it that are very positive. Um, You know, there's, again, spoiler alert, there's almost a a Willy Wonka-ish, like, I'm going to pick... I'm going to pick my successor, you're the chosen one, and it has something to do with moral, morality is is in this. Um, there's some uh, praising of self-sacrifice and love. So all of those kind of good positive things are definitely built in there in the midst of all this other stuff. Um, so it is about, it is, violence is part of it, but I don't think that's what it's about. There's other, uh, you know, it's about sort of, Class struggle. Another interesting thing about now, I'm just reading things off my notes. I apologize. We're getting to the end of the show. Um, it kind of it's a it's a riff on like how people these days want to be sort of instantly famous or instantly rich. You know, we're in this age where we could become an Instagram influencer or we could you know we're going to go and gamble and win the lottery. And there's something about the allure of that. The show is sort of about that. It's an it's a upper class, lower class, um, like the purge, uh, sort of class warfare is part of the story. Anyway, super awesome. And I guess what I wanted to say was it's, it's another one of those things where you got to ask yourself, why are millions and millions and millions of people into this super violent show? What are they getting out of it? Just like the Gabby Petito thing. What do people get out of this thing, which is ultimately a story of violence. And it's interesting to try to figure out what that is. I think there is some positive stuff underneath Squid Game, personally. But again, you gotta sift. You gotta sift that stuff. Why is it called Squid Game? Uh, because one of the games that they play, the games are based on these very specific childhood games, um, and one of the games that they played was called the Squid Game. It had to do with how the playing field was drawn out. It looked a little bit like a squid, supposedly, okay. almost like a hopscotch uh, court, you know, with the lines or whatever, kind of yeah. like that. Is this a? Is it a current show? Like it's being made right now, or is it like? Well, my understanding is the dude wrote it. It's it's the other thing that's fun about this. I'll just say real quick is it's like a lot of other very cool things. So it's similar to Battle Royale, which was a Korean movie that inspired the Hunger Games. So it's a lot like the Hunger Games. It's a lot like um, the most dangerous game, if you know that story. I know that story. It's it's vaguely dystopian, like a nineteen eighty four or like a Kafka thing in general. Um, it's just it's like it's like the Lord of the Flies a lot. You know, the Lord of the Flies, you put people in this that. Yeah, you put people in this crazy situation and their true character comes out. That's a lot of what this story is about, you know. In the situation where you could be good or evil, which one will you be? I think that's why Law part of why Lost was so cool too. A very similar we're gonna throw you in this crazy crucible. Society and societal norms are out the window. Yeah. You just You're in the crucible. Who are you really? And the good one is going to be rewarded, and the not so good one's not. So, I mean, it's not that quite that cut and dried, but something like that is going on. But anyway, all right. Well, I think we've uh, I think we've gotten to the end of this thing. All right. So so there we go. Um, 
Anyway, anything that you have to say at the end here? I enjoyed the conversation, and okay. I hope it is well, good. beneficial to uh, to the folks who listen. And- well, as I said, I think right people listen. You get to that point where we've basically handed all handed it all to you on a silver platter. Just take it, I would like take to hear from it. Maybe we got some people listening. We've told us they listen quite often, and uh-huh. be nice to know if anybody has a different perspective or would like us to to share a different perspective or invite a different perspective on That's the true. show. Uh, love to. I mean, there's any place that people are listening to this. There's a place to comment, comment on, and right? stuff. Sure. Uh, yeah, we, we I don't hardly say it anymore, but basically, right, we always want you to like like and subscribe. You can go comment on it and all that kind of stuff for sure. Yeah, because that way more people get to see it, you know, which is what we, which we would like as many people to see it as about or hear it, whatever. Yeah, especially if they got something we haven't thought of or talked about. You know, for sure. Correct us. Yeah. How could they correct us? <laughs> <laughs> Where's the room for improvement here? <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. Okay. Well, good. Thank you uh, once again, everybody, for joining us. Uh, the Your Sunday Drive podcast is presented by the Church and Drive Second of Michigan. The views shared here are just ours. Two dudes trying to follow Jesus. Find the Church and Drive online and on Facebook. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Download our app in iTunes and the Google Play Store. be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.